is for some reason the thing Dan used to test his new TV. Welcome to I Like to Movie Movie, the podcast about movie movies. My name is Carrot Smith. <laughs> My name is Dan Scully, and there is a reason behind <laughs> me having selected Coneheads. Um, and it was because if anybody followed my Twitter where I Karen'd out on Best Buy hardcore um, because they're a garbage company with customer service that's at the level of... of of like think of think of utter bullshit and then drop it like a mile below that. That's where Best Buy's customer service was. So I got home and by the time I got the TV set up and the Blu-ray plugged in and all that stuff, I had like maybe 30 minutes before I had to go to bed and I was like, "What can I just look at and not really think about?" And so I hit up Netflix and the first thing that was on there was Coneheads and I was like, "You know what? Fuck, I, I just watched a Belushi documentary and came out of it with even more of an appreciation for Ackroyd. So Coneheads just was the thing for the moment. And the irony is I ended up watching all of Coneheads. So, <laughs> <laughs> hilarious movie. Weird as shit. Um, but definitely Spanks. So, yeah, Coneheads. I'm into it. And we are joined by a very special guest, I think, for the third or fourth time on the show. I, I actually can't remember the last time you're here. We have uh, the, uh, what would you say, the Viva Video clerk extraordinaire, everybody's favorite clerk from Viva Video, Dan Santelli. <laughs> I'd say some people's favorite clerk, but hello everyone. I'm Dan Santelli, and I this is my third time, and I believe the last time I was on was in March of 2017 when we did Zodiac. Oh, it was Zodiac. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I was thinking yeah. it was L, but I guess L was the first time you were on. Because yes, I remember was... I had never met you before, and we listened to L. And that guy on the movie, before even the commercial started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I remember the that... I think that was a Sunday morning or maybe a Saturday morning when uh, you guys texted me. We were all on a thread, I think, from our mutual friend Andy, and uh, they were like, "Hey, you think I think Dan? I think it was you. Like, hey, do you just want to like meet us? Like, you know, we're gonna go see L. You can maybe be on the show or something." And then I think Garrett, you texted me when I was like pulling up, like, "We don't know what you look like. Like, how yeah. how how do we spot you or something?" I, yeah, <laughs> I actually right. remember. Uh, what you said to me, Garrett, was so funny because uh, uh, we were sitting, we were like in the theater and, and you, I was like, I actually don't know what he looks like either. And then you said, uh, you said, I was like, I don't even know, like, I don't even know if he's like white or anything. Like, I don't know what, he, I know nothing about him. And then Garrett, you came in, you're like, I ran into him into a lobby. He looks like us. <laughs> like, okay, thanks. So he just looks like Philly guy at the movies. Yeah. The only other thing I remember about that, um, I, the only other thing I really remember about that screening was uh, I think there were like about four or five walkouts. I think around like the 50 minute mark, there was like a whole group in the row that was like two rows in front of us on the right side of the theater that just like kind of like upped and left. I seem to I, man, that. they missed out. I liked yeah, that movie a lot. And I'll tell you what, I'd love to redo that episode because I feel like having seen that movie another time since then, my feelings on it have completely changed. My oh, thoughts as to what it's about have completely changed. My love for it has grown, um, but I just have a completely different read on what that movie's about now. Mm, but same. Beautiful. I love it. 
Yeah, I I I need I had another watch. I mean, that was my favorite movie that year. I mean, which I mean, it's an odd movie to say is your favorite, given like the yes. like very sort of entrenched subject matter that it's, it's you know exploring. But I mean, I believe it was number two on my list that year. It was mm-hmm. pretty high. I mean, Verhoeven's like sense of black comedy in that movie is like really impeccable. And you know, it's it, I mean, it's it's complete like. I guess we, we wouldn't call it cringe comedy, but it's a movie. It's a movie that dares you to laugh at like what it's doing because it's. Mm. I mean, it's such like triggering subject matter for some people, and you know, mm-hmm. rightfully so. But I mean, Verhoeven is not known for being politically correct, and you know he's working <laughs> nor subtle, nor subtle. Although I would say that L is probably like a little more subtle than typically. I'd say, yeah, I'd say like he's he uh, seems skosh. very. He seems to be working very much in the vein of like. Luis Bunuel, the Spanish surrealist filmmaker who made, you know, various satires of class and the bourgeois in the 60s and 70s was like, I feel like he's trying to make his own sort of like discreet charm of the bourgeoisie with that mm. movie. Mm-hmm. That one, that's one that Tori uh, is like really dying to see because she has decided to embark upon watching every rape revenge movie she can find. Uh, I think mm. she's interested in doing like a sort of larger piece on that as like a thematic subject matter. And um, so I was like, yeah, you really should see that movie because I, I think there's like a, a lot to uh, uh, chew on, uh, especially in, you know, if that's what you're viewing it for. There's a lot going on in that movie. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's actually like the angle from which my view as to what it's about changed, like what her actual mm-hmm. relationship was with her dad and things like that. But that's another episode. Yes. Yes. That's a, this is essentially, this is pretty much our holiday episode Yeah. because mm-hmm. I believe our next episode proper um, is going to be our best of the year. Um, and we'll have a YouTube, I believe we'll discuss that afterwards. We'll have a yeah, YouTube yeah. Uh, in the, in the weeks uh, prior. So as our uh, holiday episode this year, we are now, uh, <laughs> now that we've moved on beyond the uh, is or isn't Die Hard a Christmas movie discourse, the new cause celeb is, is Eyes Wide Shut a Christmas movie? And yeah. while we're not necessarily here to say whether it is or it isn't, because it is, um, <laughs> we are here to talk about Eyes Wide Shut, the oh. uh, final film from Stanley Kubrick. And, so excited. And... Uh, Quite a quite a phenomenal film, if you ask me. But I think that's where we should start. Is what is everyone's just general thoughts on this? Uh, if you don't mind, movie? I'll 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 give a yeah. Because you've never seen it before, correct? Never seen it. This was my first time. Never saw this movie before. This is one of those movies that I think has a lot of cultural permeation. Is that a a, a word that makes sense to everybody? Yeah. Where so much like, imagery from this is like known. Yeah, and, and you know this is ninety nine, right? Yeah. And, How uh, many times have you seen? Uh, Tom Cruise walking down the street in his long coat going. Right. You've seen that clip a hundred times in your life through cultural osmosis. Right. Uh, and so this comes out in 99 and I'm like, what, 12 or 13? Like, I remember when this movie came out. I remember being a young budding film fan and not knowing whether I like knowing I should be interested in this movie, but not knowing whether I actually was. Do you know what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I say that. Uh, and so like, I just feel like, like you knew I, it was good, good for you. Yeah, but yeah. I've always, I've always kind of feel this is one of those movies where I feel like I knew what this movie was, and it was not at all what I thought it was at all, like even a little bit. Why do I feel like we've had this conversation about a different movie recently? We we have, but I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like the exact same thing where you said I went into it knowing that it was good, knowing what to expect, and then coming out of it finding out I, I was just wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 
I, I'll think of it as we do this episode. Yeah. But there was another movie I felt that way about, but it was like the experience. And, and the way I would say it with this movie is the experience of watching this movie was way different than I thought it would be. I, I would say some of the subject matter lined up. There were things I thought that just were not true about it, but like a little bit it was, but like just the, I kind of thought that this would be, this is a weird thing to say about this movie, but I thought it would be a more enigmatic movie than it turned out to be. That's mm -hmm. not to say it's not enigmatic, but I thought it was going to be much more of a kind of a clusterfuck. Just There's like you... very, very few hanging threads at the end of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's pretty resolved. Yeah. Um, even down to the point, like, I don't want to get too far ahead, but like the identity of that one masked woman. Yes. Uh, every time I watch this movie in my head, I go, I forget if they ever actually reveal that. Right. And then, like, they just plainly do. Yeah. You know, like, and I thought that was going to be one of those ambiguities. Now, it could be argued that, you know, the people revealing this identity are not to be trusted, but we can get into that later. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, and I, I, you know, I think knowing the history of how this movie was made, which we can talk a little bit about, but knowing that it was a bit of a, a clusterfuck in the way that some of his productions were, knowing that he died before it got released, and I, I feel like... I actually thought maybe he died before it even got finished. He died like days after submitting Final Cut. Is okay. what I heard. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, but yeah, there yeah. are multiple cuts. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I need to be, I'm not sure if this is it. I need to check my sources, but I believe he died like two or three days after they had picture lock. I don't okay. think he was alive That's probably what it is, yeah. for finishing, putting the final touches on the final sound mix. That was the one thing okay. that I think was, had some, uh, Assistance. I think I think I don't know, but my guess is Leon Vitali, who is his personal assistant from Barry Lyndon until the end of his life. My guess is he must have taken over and at least guiding the sound mix a little bit. But... Can I ask a weird specific question about that as long as you're talking about that? Because there's not really a reason to talk about that otherwise. I don't know if this is just like a problem with my TV, which is admittedly quite a few years old at this point. This movie had a lot of really weird, just high pitched like ringing throughout it was that just a thing that was happening on whatever like wherever i like is that a thing that sounds familiar to you guys i think that might have been you okay that said i well no, I mean, here's another thing maybe said tell you you might be able to confirm this for me i know that when it comes to home video releases uh kubrick is very precious about certain things and like a couple of his movies are only available in mono um, you know, like there's there's like things like that. And so I think that there might be some aspect of the sound mix to this where it's like not necessarily optimized, but okay. it's also not in a position where anybody's going to be changing it. But yeah. I, I don't know, because I forget it is available streaming somewhere. That was how I watched it. You know, I didn't like cheat or anything, but it, but yeah. it had a very weird, like almost aggravating sound that played almost constantly throughout the background noise. That might have been you, because I did not have yeah. that experience. And even though I have this on DVD, I did watch it on Hulu. I think that's yeah. how I watched it, too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't be sure, but you know, I've watched this movie enough to know that it has a fairly quiet sound mix, uh, okay. at least when there's no, like, there's no music playing. Yeah. Um, so I have a feeling that they may have had a bad master on their, yeah. on their platform. Could be. Uh, I mean, Wherever I got it from, it was weird. I was like, this is frustrating. And I was now, like, at first I was like, this is definitely a problem. And then it just kept happening that I was like, is this a weird fucking choice that Kubrick made? <laughs> is this Kubrick being just like a fucking yeah. weirdo? <laughs> no, uh, one thing that you probably did notice about this, it's not in every cut, but it's in most cuts. 
uh, during the orgy scene, any instance where you would have actually seen penetration, there is a digitally re- rendered hooded figure standing in front of that. Uh, that wasn't always there. I imagine had Kubrick not passed away before the final cut of this, he would have had nothing but terrible things to say about that development. But alas, it is there. Believe it or not, I believe courtesy of the uh, the Eyes Wide Shut program that was on the, uh, well, it wasn't Siskel and Ebert at that point. It was just Ebert, Roger Ebert at the movies. He had a panel of critics, which was uh, Ray Pride, uh, Michael Wilmington, and Jonathan Rosenbaum were on. And I believe it was confirmed that Kubrick, or at least the Kubrick estate and WB had agreed to have those in there because they wanted because they wanted it to be shown with an R rating. Um, I Fair enough. I mean, s- I, I do get the making that exchange yeah. for mm-hmm. release, but it is one of those things that, like, even had I gone into watching this movie, and I've actually seen that footage before because there there are cuts that that I think like the European cut has a couple different alterations. So you see it, and it is just two people fucking pornographically, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those things that even if I didn't know to look for it, it's a choice that I don't love because it is pretty noticeable that this item is placed right there, you know? Well, and you can really tell in one uh, shot when um, it's at the very tail end of uh, when Cruz is wandering throughout the... Uh, uh, and he, it's right when they go into the library at the end, right when he's uh, not accosted, but the the one woman tries to pick him up and distract him. There's a moment where the steady cam passes by one of the digital figures, and it's impossible for it to do what it's doing without actually running into the person. Yeah. So that's like how you can definitely tell us there. Now I've I'm. It familiar has a with weird the- hovery element though, and that's what bugs me. Now, granted, I'm looking for it now, but I also. I'm convinced that even if I wasn't looking for it, I would just have that feeling of something, there's some fuckery going on here, you know? Well, actually, I'll be honest, I did not notice that that was digital. I did actually think that there were figures standing there, and I was actually kind of admiring that Kubrick, of all people, was willing to make that sacrifice just so his movie could be seen by a wider audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that's at least what I've heard. I don't think we're ever going to really know because, you know, I I mean, who knows what the publicists told the the just right in their in their in their pieces. But I mean, my guess, I mean, I know that he that would not have been his authorized cut in the sense like, I mean, the European version, I suspect, is the definitive version, which that stuff is just not their period and that's the version i'm i'm more familiar with um yeah but uh i uh, yeah it is it is an interesting compromise and it does help open up the movie to play in multiplexes which it did i mean can you imagine this you know no i know believe it or not, i can certainly see his estate opening. making that compromise i can make i can see his estate making that compromise for sure I don't know if I can see him doing it, but then again, like everything I ever hear about him is always contradicted as well. You know, like he's 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 an enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped whatever that clue. Yeah. Um, I will say that the uh, I'm glad that it went wide because my first my first uh, uh, experience with this movie was actually my grandmother, who is now in her 90s. She used to go to the movies all the time. And so this would have been 99. So she would have been in her late 60s. And um, I remember as a kid having the same experience as you, Garrett, seeing that trailer and being like, I know this is something I should see. But like, I'm too young to understand cinema, sex, all that shit, you know? Yeah. 
But I remember my grandmother saying that she saw it. And so I asked her, I was like, was it good? And this is my grandmother's response to a T. She said, yeah, really weird, though. <laughs> and that was the whole thing. And I was like, you know what? But I think now in hindsight, I look and I go, this is not the movie that I would ever I would ever expect any grandparents to not have a virulent reaction to. Right. And so for her reaction to be like, it was good, but it was weird, I think really speaks to the the skill of the filmmaking to be able to kind of sneak something so subversive into a, a mainstream. Because like she went to like the Ritz and she saw mainstream art house, if you will, you know? Yeah. And, and so for this to kind of clear that bar and for my Nana, uh, you know, my old racist Nana to just be like, nah, it was a little weird, is a tremendous feat, if you ask that- me. I totally agree. I mean, that's why I said I kind of admired the choice in some weird way, because I, yeah, I really I was thinking, I just was thinking about like, I know I would like this movie one way or the other. I genuinely don't know how many people I could say that about, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and, yeah. and that choice really does feel like it's it, it's such a stupid, simple, subtle thing, which is why it's annoying that it has to be made. But because it's such a stupid, simple, subtle thing that then opens it up to all these other people to see something that is yeah, not so, stupid. yeah, so mm-hmm. enigmatic and strange and, and, and I think really gets at some very complicated, interesting issues that pretty much everybody, you know, I think there yeah, are, it's are, relatable. Are few, yeah, there's few people that would go through life as a total loner to the point where they couldn't relate to this in some way. Do you know what I mean? And I will mm-hmm. also admit my resistance to that thing being photoshopped in there is because I am an anti-censorship purist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an all or nothing for me. Yeah. I am an anti, uh, anti. I, I am a free speech purist, top to bottom. Take that as you will. I am yeah. an anti-censorship purist, top to bottom. I am a don't fuck with the artist's art under any yeah. circumstances whatsoever purist. So it bugs me on that end. Yeah, but. The angle that you have, like, if that's what it took to get it out to a wider audience, it's not ideal for me, but I will accept it on those terms for sure. Yeah, I sort of think it's interesting, you know? Yeah. It's also worth saying that, uh, according to Ebert, the top brass at WB, when asked if they would release that, uh, the cut, if they, if it had an NC-17, they said, I guess we're not in the business of NC-17. So, I mean, there clearly is, you know, still like, even, even if there was compromise made, it's very clear that. WB was positioning this movie to be an R-rated film that would get wide distribution, and you know, which means they were pretty serious about that, given the fact that Kubrick basically had, you know, carte—I uh, guess maybe not carte blanche, but he had probably more freedom than any director under contract at WB for at least the last thirty years of his life. I mean, certainly, he basically like—I mean, he earned it <laughs> over two two years shooting this movie. I think I was going to say, is that what it is? Is it a two-year count on the 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 shoot, right? I'm gonna take it's, a look. It's really through. long. Well, that's what bugged me about this with the shoot is like I was watching. I was going at the time of release. Tom Cruise was 37, which means that when he was shooting this, he was younger than me. <laughs> and Nicole Kidman's 32 at the time of release. So I was watching this movie for the first time uh, in five years, and I was watching, going, "I am older than both of these fucking people," <laughs> and it's yeah. fucking me out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Principal photography began on November 96 and it wrapped in June of 98. So it had a 15, uh, let's see here, for over 15 months. And the period included an unbroken shoot of 46 weeks. Wow. So my guess is they probably had some pickups like between like time. Yeah. But, you know, the fact the fact is it, it it took a year and a half to make the movie. So I, 
I can't wait to actually dig into the movie, but I, I have questions about this as long as we're talking about it. Are, yeah. are you are either of you familiar enough with the shoot itself to know, like, is this just his typical like he's reshooting scenes over and over and over again? Or are there four more hours of eyes wide shut that we just are never going to see and don't know about? <laughs> both, maybe? Mean? My guess yep. would be both, but I don't know. I honestly wouldn't know. I mean, all I know is Cooper incinerated all of his outtakes, so we'll okay. never really know exactly like what the r- length of the rough cuts were, if there were yeah. any. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, this one was where th- this one did have an interesting case in it because uh, this one's the length of the production, I believe, was I don't know if he, it was that I, I think he, he knew the movie. I guess he knew the movie he wanted to make, but he st- made some casting adjustments uh, as mm. he was shooting it like. Like there was a version of this movie that had Harvey Keitel and Jennifer Jason Lee in it, and it they like they were cast, they shot their most of their stuff, and then Kubrick recast it. Like uh, wow. Harvey Keitel was going to be Ziggler, of and course. then Sidney Pollock replaced him. Yeah, and Jennifer Jason. Oh, Lee, I really like Sidney Pollock in this movie. Me too. No, I you know as much as I love Keitel, Pollock is really the right choice because. Kaitel is someone you believe could have a sinister side to him. Yes, Whereas exactly. He's projects, a little scuzzy. Whereas Pollock projects this general, like, like overall niceness, mm-hmm. which is a perfect misdirect for the the turn that the character takes in the last third. Well, the, the last big scene at the end. I think a lot of what this movie is about is that whole idea of like, there's more going on behind the scenes of these fresh faces you see every day. You know, this there's there's always a dark side to all of these things. And like, yeah, Harvey Keitel, I see him and I almost see the dark side on the surface. Mm-hmm. Whereas Pollock, it's just like, yeah, I'm going to drink tea with this man and we're going to talk about books, you know, like it's <laughs> that kind of thing. Yep, we're gonna we're gonna play well as he as he would say we're just gonna knock a few balls around while yeah. I just, yes. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah uh, actually specifically that line when he said it I was just like oh you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I for Jennifer Jason Lee I think she played the Marie the Marie Richardson character who's the daughter of the of the 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 patient that died that he goes to he oh, goes to smooch okay. she did she has a single you mean greg from dharma and greg's fiance <laughs> um i think she gives one of the film's best performances and uh-huh. she's really only in that one moment that is such a a an achingly sad moment for her yes. um but she is really only in the scene to to motivate uh, Doctor Bill's descent into maybe I want to do something, you know, uh, yeah. something okay. wrong. Guys, I have three hundred questions about this movie, and and this leads me into one. If but you guys are ready, I yeah. want to say one thing before we yeah. move away from it. Just about the whole the mythos of Kubrick yeah, yeah. doing take after take after take after take. I saw a movie at uh, I'm going to forget which film festival it was. Maybe it was Nightstream. Might have been Fantastic Fest. I don't know. Um, there was a lot of fests there back to back. But Kubrick by Kubrick is a mm-hmm. documentary that uh, you know just goes through that stuff. And in one of the uh, talking heads is uh, oh no, why am I forgetting what's her name from The Shining? Oh, uh, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. And she was talking about how you know the legendary baseball bat scene in The Shining they did that hundreds of times. And she very expressly says, like, it's a misconception that this was done in a way to abuse the actors. She said what happened was Kubrick had us doing this over and over and over again to the point that you get so tired of doing it that there's this middle section where you're just phoning it in. 
And then the same way that if you say a word over and over again, it starts to just not become a word. She's like, that starts to happen. And when you get through that middle section where everything is just gobbledygook because you're just going through the motions, suddenly you hit this point where it's transcendent and it becomes real. And whereas many productions trust the actors to get there, Kubrick is not necessarily the type to allow that because he can see the difference between an actor getting there and a scene being there. Mm-hmm. And he was unwilling to relent the power of getting to that moment. And so it took tons and tons of takes. And so watching Eyes Wide Shut, I'm watching it, I'm going, my God, I can only imagine how long this fucking orgy scene must have taken, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Down I to mean, the I- textures in the walls. I was like, this must have been a nightmare. But man, oh man, that is some of my favorite cinema I've ever seen. <laughs> I have I have some questions in particular about Cruz's performance that I think are potentially related to that as as cool. we go here. But yeah, that was all I wanted to say. So go into your thing. My first big question, and it's kind of related to the scene where he gets the call, uh, the house call to where the guy has died and his daughter is very upset. It's kind of related mm-hmm. to that scene. This is just my first general question about this movie, which is, and this is I don't think the movie has evidence of this. This is just for us to discuss. Is Dr. Bill a cheater? I genuinely don't know if he has never cheated on his wife before this movie begins. I get the distinct impression throughout it that he may actually just already be a cheater. But I'm not sure necessarily... Like, the way that woman interacts with him is not as if she's... uh, This is not to say this is not as if, but she may just be breaking down, right? Yes. My interpretation was more that there is some prior relationship there that makes her feel this way in this moment that like the death of her father is now bringing out this prior relationship you know she that she knows that the death of her father means like she's now just going to sort of enter into this like you know relationship with uh greg from Tarman and greg you know what i mean and and this is her last shot to finally have the relationship that she has maybe secretly behind doors had with Dr. Bill. Do you, do you know what I'm saying by that? Yeah. I actually don't think that he's a cheater. Okay. Um, because I think a lot of the tension of the movie is the will he, won't he moments. Right. But I have a theory about his past with Nick Nightingale. I saw which, this. Which yeah. um, I would like to talk about. I think that it's less that he's a cheater. Yeah. And I think that he is outwardly flirty in a way that is compensatory for something. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my guess. Yeah. And whether that is just inadequacy or as I'm reading it, I think that there's an inherent queerness to him Mm -hmm. that not to necessarily say he's outright homosexual, but to say that he is not necessarily representative of a heteronormative relationship so much so as he would expect as expected to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he's constantly flirting with ladies at a party. It's Mm -hmm. why one of his patients, uh, you know, reads his help as sexual because it's, mm-hmm. it's not not. It's why even when um when uh, uh, Nicole Kidman's asking him about like, you know, when you're grabbing the breast of a patient and all that. And he very clearly says, I keep a, I keep a female nurse in the room at all times. Yeah, yeah. I, I think all of that speaks to his general awareness of the heteronormativity he has to put forward and mm-hmm. what that says to his image as a high-class professional. Because as we learn in the mm-hmm. movie, he's he's very high-class, but he's one level below the elite. 
Right, right. You know, yes. um, and so I think that there's a lot of posturing there. And I think that's what got him into the mess. I don't think he is a cheater prior to the movie. That's but that's my read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that read. That's very interesting. I think part of what brought me to ask this question is that, and I get that the movie is, you know, a little bit meant to be like a, I don't know what you, like a Dark Knight of the Soul kind of thing or whatever, right? Like he's on a sort of journey throughout the movie. But when you think about it in kind of a practical sense, it is like, I, I saw somebody gave a review of this movie that really made me laugh where, he, where the review was just like, uh, listen, if I went to a party, came home, smoked a joint with my wife, then got a house call that I went to, then went to a different part, like I would have fallen asleep halfway through this guy's night. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like it, <laughs> when you think about the way all of this stuff lines up throughout the movie, where in like basically one night, he almost cheats on his wife like a whole bunch of times in a whole bunch of different scenarios, mm -hmm. none of which it seems like he's terribly uncomfortable with or is even really experiencing for the first time. I, I was like, is this like, are are we, does the movie want me to think that this is like, oh, he's just entertaining this stuff for the first time, but kind of the joke or trick of the movie is that like only a guy who's done this stuff a bunch of times already could even find himself in these situations back to See, back I would say that it's not that he's experiencing it. I, I think he is experiencing it for the first time, but you notice he's behaving the way that one would expect you to behave if it mm -hmm. wasn't your first time. When yeah, yeah, he yeah. takes the, the prostitute back to her yeah. house, he doesn't know what to do. He's right. like, I don't know, what do you recommend? And she laughs right. at him and all that. But I think that when he starts trying to be sexy and cocky and stuff, he's essentially just reading a script of like, what does Bond do? You know, like he, right. sees, mm -hmm. he sees that, which um, we'll get into it, but our last week's YouTube episode when we were talking about the inherent asexuality of Cruz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's different here. It but is. I, I feel like I'm steamrolling uh, you, Dan. What, what are your yeah, thoughts sorry. on Garrett's question as to whether he was a prior cheater? Uh, I, I mean, I, maybe maybe mine isn't as nuanced as yours is, but I just I feel like the guy is just co innately coded as a square. I yeah. I really I really don't think that he has. I don't know if he's ever even thought of the idea of cheating on his wife because he is so inflamed by the thought that his wife could have sexual fantasies about somebody other than himself. And that to me is why he goes out to try to either subliminally or consciously get back at her in kind of a yeah. petulant way by basically like pursuing, yeah, well, not, not really pursuing, but basically just falling into uh, the possibility of sleeping with a woman and then either being thwarted by his wife calling uh, on the phone mm -hmm. or some kind of external event. Um, like when he it goes feels a lot like he's dipping his toes, just like yes. trying mm -hmm. to get a feel for what that life is like. And I'll say before, before I lose it, I'll say like that, that and the, the way that is structured, I think has unfortunately has led some people to think that Kubrick's basically making an, argument for monogamy which i don't think is what's going on here uh, right. i think a lot of it is much more about ba like base human desires and sort of persona versus the inner being and the, mm -hmm. the various performances that we put upon as you put down like in terms of what social circles we're in because the it's, it's interesting because if we were if we were going to think that you know he may have a kind of like queer edge to him then maybe the scene to really look at is the scene when he um uh, not meets with, but when he engages with Alan Cumming as the bellhop yes. in the hotel, yes. which is really like one of the only times where he actually like seems to 
have some semblance of being a regular human being and seems almost like comfortable or at least intrigued in those reaction shots by the way like uh coming is basically like you know clearly trying to flirt with him yeah Yeah. and i think too that his normalcy comes his his like air of normalcy in reaction to coming comes from i'm gonna keep saying come uh his reaction to coming uh it's appropriate uh his his reaction to 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 coming's uh you know kind of like awkward forthrightness mm-hmm. is one of comfort but he also seems to be wanting to couch it in well at least i'm not that guy right i've got mm-hmm. i've got normalcy on my side which i think bolsters my argument that he's compensating for something but um, like I said, this is new. This is probably the oh, first time I've seen this movie. And this is new to this reading. Just because I was watching the way he talked to Nick Nightingale and the way they talked to one another, I was like, I think that they either used to regularly or at least had one sort of incident back in med school. That's um, interesting. And furthermore, it could be the reason why Nick Nightingale dropped out. We don't know. Right. Now, granted, this is none of this is necessarily in the text of the movie. Yes, yes. But I think it's there in the performance. But I also just might be reading into it because that's just something that I always do with Tom Cruise because he's so distinctly asexual. Well, you know, it's not in the text, but there, like, explicitly, but there are some implications. I don't know if I would quite agree with you in terms of the Nightingale, um, Bill Hartford possible, like, uh, affair, or at least. At the very least, there was sexual tension between them, I think. Oh, 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 I, you can definitely see a bit of that when they first reunite and they're at mm-hmm. Ziegler's party. So, no, I mean, I'm not like shoving it down, but I was like, <laughs> no, 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 I, I hear you. The, the, what, the telling scene for me is maybe the way he, not so much that he reacts, but he doesn't react to the gay bashing by the, uh, the, yeah. the group of like, uh, I guess, bros that are kind of walking down village, uh, the village streets and he kind of sees them. Yeah. And I feel like the fact that he does not like, kind of like even react to them in a way that you know is just either just like standoffish in the sort of normally heteronormative way or even like acknowledge like like have a moment of gay panic or anything that could be the kind of like key to the read that you're looking yeah. to dan see i picked it up from when nick nightingale was talking about the job that he has later that night he was like oh would you believe it i wear a blindfold i get a call an hour beforehand that takes me there but he says like the things that you'll see here, man, it's crazy. And the women, you would not believe it. And Bill gives him a look like, what are you talking about? Why are we talking about the Like, he very clearly has a reaction like, we're interested in women now. And, and the way it's like, it almost read to me as like, I put on that veil for the world, but I thought between you and me, we don't necessarily have to posture as bros here. <laughs> yeah. And it like seemed very strong, but it's another one of those things like you and I talked about in uh, Mission Impossible 2, Garrett, where it's yeah. like Tom Cruise seems to have such an inherent cluelessness about the sexual elements of certain movies he's in. But I don't think I necessarily see that in Eyes Wide Shut, which makes, which to me uh, uh, bolsters my point once again that like maybe he is tapping into something here, mm. but at the same mm-hmm. time I could be wrong. This is just you know gravy on the on the the meatloaf. No, um, I don't. Know. I can't come up <laughs> if, with a good metaphor. If you'll allow mm-hmm. me, I, I have two thoughts here. I would like to offer sure. just like maybe one final counter in the is Doctor Bill a cheater thing, which is I did want to address the idea that. Um, you know, just because he says to his wife at one point, like, oh, I always have a woman in the office with me, blah, blah, blah. I actually took almost that whole scene. Oh, 
And the other thing we were talking about where oh, like I already know where you're going. Yes. So also what you're talking about where he keeps fantasizing once she tells him like, oh, I fantasized about somebody else. He can't stop thinking about her with somebody else. And that seems to drive a lot of his decisions through the rest of it. Yeah. He's like I, justifying poor decisions based on yeah. that. Yeah. So here's the thing. I do. For one thing. I don't think just because he's suddenly jealous that his wife might have a sexual life outside of theirs means he's not a cheater. I think there are plenty of cheaters that still don't want their wives with other people. And so well, it's always get... the it's always the cheater that accuses the other one of cheating. Right. <laughs> it's like generally how it goes. <laughs> well, and so so what I would say is just to offer a counter to that particular point, I don't necessarily think just because he's, you know, upset about her having a fantasy outside of their marriage doesn't mean he's not you know yeah, what i mean i would agree um mm-hmm. i also would say that was one of my things uh, what i was surprised about was uh in that really great scene by the way like i want to make sure we don't lose the kidman of it all in this conversation she's tremendous she's in this tremendous. movie and and in that great great scene where they are smoking a joint together and she's kind of dressing him down but then also very revealing about some of her own feelings and stuff um he offers what i would consider the very stereotypical male sort of, no, no, I always have a woman in the office with me. No, no, I never think about sex when I'm touching their boobs. No, yeah, no. It feels like, a little denial Yeah, It mm-hmm. feels very much like a, no, listen, I have set up a perfectly inscrutable life so that you can't ask me these questions. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. If you, if, and, and I was very impressed, actually, that Kubrick seems to have a read on that among just kind of, um, um, you know, I think this is a thing that occurs a, a lot in long-term relationships of that sort of that push and pull that, that, that back and forth, that sort of, you know, men like to make excuses like that, that ultimately don't really have anything to do with what she's actually saying to him. Yeah. You know it's, what I mean? it's battling, battling emotional turmoil with logic. And it's right. like, that's not at all compatible. It just doesn't exactly. work that way. That's not and actually also, what she's asking him about. You know, I will add that just from a filmmaking pers- perspective, the, his, his uh, mental imagery of what she looks like fucking the sailor. Yeah. That is the most perfect cinematic depiction of what jealousy looks and feels like yeah and i've certainly had history with being a jealous person and watching that i go god damn that is like i can feel that in my heart that is yeah that's how it's done Mm -hmm. now that's not to say that that means my interpretation is any more valid but i did i wanted to bring those two points up because i think those are pretty i think those are especially in 2020 like worthwhile things to sort of think about in regards to this movie I think it speaks to the strong characterization across the movie. I, yeah. I don't think that mm-hmm. there's there's very few people that I can point my finger to in this and say, you are good, you are bad. Right. But right. I can mm-hmm. say across the board, I can point to them and say, I've met you before. Yep. You're a human being. I yep. know this person. I've experienced that. Yep. And, you know, that's just one of the realities of life is that answers don't really come. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah. a thing that happens. We're still just moving forward. And so this movie very, very strongly represents that especially in the confines of a, of a relationship yeah and i use the word confines uh purposefully because i think a lot of this movie is ignore it's about ignoring the good things you have because you think the things you don't have are better mm-hmm. and therefore missing these things that you do have i think there's a little bit of that in there and what's so funny is that Nicole Kidman's character seems to already be at peace with this. She's very comfortable telling her husband exactly mm-hmm. what her fantasies are mm-hmm. and then relegating it and saying, but it's not enough for me to actually take action. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whereas him, 
he's very, very dishonest with her throughout the entire movie. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and it's just interesting where it's like, I, I can only imagine. And, you know, of course, the end is him being honest with her. Presumably, we don't actually see him come clean. Um, but I, I actually at that point do believe that he comes clean with her. Um, I, I think that the movie earns me believing that I could see it otherwise, too. Well, but that's... I just, you know, I, I like that idea that she sees Nicole Kidman's very honest with him and yeah. she sees the confines of the relationship as a structure through which she can ascend beyond her baser nature. Mm-hmm. Whereas he is very dishonest with her because he sees the relationship as confinement in mm-hmm. that it prevents him from indulging his baser nature. And yeah. that's why that the wonderful final line uh, really does say, like, we can indulge in this baser nature together Um, but it it is very interesting that her approach is one of honesty and he sees that as deceit and his Mm -hmm. approach is one of pure deceit and he sees that as a form of honesty yes and and one of the more sorry go ahead garrett i was just gonna say i think that is one of the particular things that i I remember now that ringing in my ears in that conversation we have just seen him go up to help sydney pollock's character revive that woman right Mm -hmm. and we know that moments later, he lies to his wife about that. He does not tell her about that. And then in that conversation, he says, well, I would never lie to you. And it was that moment that that rang in my ears. And I was like, okay, so maybe he just is a cheater. You know what I mean? It was like that rang in my ears that he had, we just watched him lie to her. And he immediately said, well, I would never lie to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was like, okay, so this guy is immediately somebody I can't necessarily trust. Like what he tells us or anyone else in this movie, you know? It certainly can be argued, for sure. Yeah. But it also kind of, like, speaks to the... Because the one reason why I think he finally does come clean to his wife at the end, and I do think that he is being completely forthright and honest, is because that... I feel a lot. I feel like one of the keys to really getting the way that 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 Cruz character thinks is to look at how he relates to the Ziggler character, mm. because at the end of the bathroom scene, uh, when the girl has OD'd, um, he Ziggler basically says, "You know, I hope we can keep this just between us." Mm-hmm. And there's at least some weird kind of like, I don't know if you want to call it like, you know surrogate father-son or sort of like kind of a male bond that's between the two of them that is ultimately betrayed at the when he's when Cruz is essentially gaslit by Ziggler in the pool hall scene so I feel like a lot of the way that he responds to like it's it maybe also speaks to sort of like the inner he wants to be Ziggler I think he wants to be him in a way because he represents that elite level that that Bill is not quite at yet yeah I, I think also a lot of it has to do with the kind of like innate sexism of the male brain uh, particularly Mm -hmm. from around this time and how like you know there's much more trust like in terms of the connections that you have with men and taking their word more seriously versus that of Mm -hmm. your own wife i mean he i think ultimately tells meanwhile she's the most honest person to him oh yeah absolutely um but i feel like a lot of the reason why he ultimately tells her the truth at the end is because he feels so betrayed by ziggler and he like he can't (sighs) clearly like, I don't think Cruz's character believes half the stuff that Ziggler says. And the interesting thing about that scene is because the movie never reveals actually what happens off screen. It's that I've always felt that the Ziggler scene at the end is kind of meant to be a ga- him gaslighting Cruz and thus the movie gaslighting the audience to make us think that, you know, like, you know, Nick is purportedly back in Seattle. I don't right. believe that for a moment. Yeah. 
<laughs> Nothing know, happened like, to her that night that hasn't happened a hundred times before. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I believe him when he says that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, maybe I mean that, that this may be a little literal minded to say, but I feel like it's a it, or at least a literal minded observation. But I feel like you know, it's at least a good way to sort of like figure out the kind of space that that the psychic space that that char- that crew's character is operating in and how he relates not just to men, but also the women in his mm-hmm. life. And also the fact that the character is kind of like. Go back to what you were saying, Dale, like how he postures this persona, but he is ultimately clearly kind of like not very comfortable i think in his own skin yeah I and mean, you know the and of course you know it's the big joke of the movie is that you know Cruz this this character that is basically objectified sexually by almost every person he comes in contact with once the whole night excursion begins how he constantly fails to like commit adultery mm-hmm. you know yeah. like that which is a an interesting subversion of the sort of like you know usual studio picture male characterization mm-hmm. um at least particularly of movies at that time. It's just, it's, I think it's just kind of like interesting to look at it uh, in that sense of how, you know, this, this character, it takes basically sort of, you know, a break of male bonding in order for him to actually come down to earth and sort of like see, you know, it's very interesting, Dan. I would agree. I also think too, another interesting thing that I pulled out of the Nightingale interactions is exactly this. Dr. Bill did what you are supposed to do. And listeners, I'm air quoting what you're supposed mm-hmm. to do, which is go to school, train for your job, get a job, start your family, do this. Yep. And he is utterly enchanted with the fact that Nick Nightingale said, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I want to play music for a living. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, he's got a wife and four kids at home that he yeah. ostensibly very rarely sees. But it's still one of those things where he's looking going, man, I did everything that I'm supposed to do. And it's not necessarily fulfilling. But I'm very fulfilled by this music that I'm hearing that's created by a person that I know. Yeah. And what is this choice? And so it, it, you know, it kind of undercuts his posturing a little bit to run across that. Mm-hmm. That is a great point. I would like to talk really quick about the fact that in a movie that has a secret society that is having orgies at different locations around New York on various nights of the week. The actual weirdest thing in the movie is the implication that Nick Nightingale has a family all the way back in Seattle where based on the other things that Nick tells us, he maybe never spends time. Like, oh, yeah. he, goes, he goes, oh, you got to go where the work is. And I was like, the work, my man, you play piano in bars. That work is yeah. everywhere. Why are uh, you I'm on pretty the sure other Portland's s- right around the corner from yeah, me, brother. Yeah, why are you <laughs> on the other side of the country? Well, and- <laughs> that speaks to my other theory. Yeah. Is that if Nick Nightingale and Dr. Bill had some sort of sexual past, it could lead to the suggestion that Nick Nightingale is is not home because he doesn't particularly care to be. Because that's right. he, you know, to that degree, he did what you're supposed to do. But yeah. finding fulfillment on that level is just something that doesn't exist there. Yeah. Um, now, once again, this is me just you know projecting oh, yeah. an no. idea onto that's it. That's different. You know, I think that's, I, mean, that... I think that's an interesting idea. But yeah, that was so funny. It's like, yeah, I got a wife. Four kids. I was like, when did you have time to even make those kids, man? <laughs> it's like, like you were well, on tour. He, impli- he goes, it's like, he, at some point, he's like, yeah, you know, like uh, every couple of weeks, I get a new invitation to a different address. And I was like, every couple of weeks? Dude, I thought you meant like, yeah, I'm in New York because I got this job at this bar for a two week stint. I didn't yeah. realize you meant like, I mostly live in New York and forgot that I had a family until you asked. Like, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? 
But that's yeah. another thing too that 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 Bill can be jealous of is right. this guy actually has a valid excuse that he can cut the ties from his family and validate it as I need to do this to provide for you. Right. right. Whereas he does not. The only right. thing he can do to get away from his family essentially is lie. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. But also, it, it could also just be a narrative anachronism because, you know, this 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 movie is based on a novel from the 19th century by Arthur Schnitzler. Um, and Wait, is what? Yeah, yeah. And I believe in the novel, too, they're Jewish, which yes. is different because a lot of this movie, I think, leans upon the weird prudishness and guilt that Catholic people have about sex, which, as I understand it, does not exist in Judaism. Well, the well, actually, Frederick, uh, Frederick Raphael, who wrote the script for this, originally wanted the Hartford character to be uh, an unhappy Jew, and okay. um, or at least in which is it, it's interesting that Kubrick would jettison that, particularly because I believe Kubrick was Jewish himself, and you know, although he he didn't really work a lot of Judaism themes into his work, so maybe I'm just yeah. being like, I think it makes okay. sense though to change it to to. To suggested, you know, Catholic or Christian or just of that, mm-hmm. I think it makes perfect sense given the tension that is underlying, you know, a, I don't know a lot about Judaism, but I grew up in an area where there's a lot of Jewish people. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I was always impressed by is how many celebrations and rites seem to be designed with the idea of interpersonal communication at its heart. Mm-hmm. And when I was raised Catholic, um, I've since recovered. And, um, but one of the things that I always found so distancing about it is that it's a religion very much based in mourning and, and avoiding communication almost at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so I I think it does make sense for a movie that, that all of its, its plot thrust comes from miscommunications or, you know, willful deception that I Mm -hmm. just don't see being congruent with, you know, a, a Jewish family. Yeah, but also in the general sense, you know, the movie does have a sort of dream-like aura to it. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it's pure dream logic, but it does have the kind of, you know, sus- it's not quite reality. It's maybe a heightened reality. I mean, it's Kubrickian reality in which, like, everything is slightly exaggerated to some degree. Mm-hmm. And I guess the anachronism I was referring to with the Nick Nightingale is, I guess, in the novel or at least the time which that novel was written, a musician probably would have been called away from town to town to play in the courts mm-hmm. or to at least play by hire because, that you know, the, the trade itself was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I won't finish that thought just because I feel like it's it's obvious what I'm about to say. But, uh, no, you know, please, I, please say it. I actually uh, want to hear the rest of this because I think you're on something that's interesting, yeah. Oh, but I feel... Well, the anachronism, like, they, like what Kubrick thing is doing is he's kind of keeping the general sort of plot threads and strands from that 19th century text and just basically modifying the setting but not mm-hmm. modifying the logic and yeah, that kind of rem- remove creates that sort of like dream oneric atmosphere that's in the movie i mean it's like i don't agree with some critics who have said that this movie takes place all within a dream space i think mm-hmm. it works with dream logic but i feel like there is like that there are like if the mo- whole movie isn't waking moments, then it's at least you know mostly waking moments, uh, or at least moments when people are awake. Like the only, yeah. I would only, not read this movie as being in a dream. No, like the only I scene think the that dream I feel- tone is there, but especially mm-hmm. with like that that like the the kind of off blue lighting from outside mm-hmm. that hits mm-hmm. people. That's almost like when I see that, I think of like blue velvet. But uh, yeah. you know, I see like yeah, like there's the, that feels dreamy, but I don't think an ounce of this happens while someone's dreaming. Well, no, not, the, and 
The Not only for nothing, scene. why would you smoke weed with your wife in a dream? You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you yeah. need to go in an altered state while you're already in an altered state? You know, mm-hmm. the only the only scene that I think could potentially be argued as happening within a dream space is when uh, Alice wakes up and recounts the dream that she had uh, to him. And there's all that blue light. I mean, that's the only scene that I feel like you could potentially make an argument for existing while a character is asleep because yeah. it's a kind of recapitulation of the idea from the earlier scene when uh, she, uh, they're they're high and she confronts him. And, you know, it could be that sort of paranoid, you know, sort of like thoughts that are lingering that are just firing into a sort of like dreams. Uh, like he's sleeping, he's just like having a re-sort of experience of that exact uh, I have an in- dynamic. I have an interesting thought about that, Dan, because I, <laughs> I, I, I thought that was very interesting that she describes that dream and then what she describes almost seems to be what what bill ends up going through in some way like that there's almost like this weird psychic link between them that like once this kind of this little rift kind of erupts in their marriage they almost seem to be able to psychically like affect one another's reality you know like through their sort of Oh yeah, her her description of that dream sounds like what his reception of a different dream description would be as a jealous mm-hmm. man. Yes. Yep. Because the first time it's her just saying, I had this dream and I really was just enamored with the thought of physically embracing this guy. But the second one is, and then we laughed at you. There yeah. was people yes. everywhere fucking, you weren't one of them, and we laughed at you. And like that feels very much not like what her fantasies were like but very much what he fears they actually were. Mm-hmm. And from that angle, I could, I could imagine someone arguing that it's, that it's and, a dream, but I don't know if I'd say dream, but I would certainly say that's a point where like you're saying, Garrett, there's just this weird, loose relationship or connection between them yeah. that speaks to that, that, that tension that's currently between them at that and moment. It, it's almost like this pain that they're each kind of feeling literally like influences the other one's reality. Like correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, her description of that happens before he literally ends up at a party where he is alone amongst a bunch of people fucking. Yeah. Uh, th- that uh, you mean the, when she uh, talks about the dream that she had the, w- yeah. where she specifically that, says like everybody was laughing at you. That, that comes immediately after the, he comes home from the yes. orgy. Sorry. Yeah. You're right. It's after it. And so it's like, it's like he has this experience and she literally dreams about it while he's doing it. Yep. You know what I mean? Once again, though, that's another situation where it almost retroactively, from his point of view, justifies what he already did and ostensibly currently feels guilty about. Right, right, yeah. And and because that's the way it plays out, that makes me think that one could make the case that that one scene is happening inside Bill's head when he's having a dream. Like, you know. Could be. But I I really like the idea more that it's like, there's just some weird cosmic thing between these people and this like this little rift in their relationship is like somehow literally affect because I do actually think like what I think Hubert's getting at is like I think that happens like mm-hmm. when I have those like those little problems with people you love you know people you really really oh, love and they always know you know and but whether then they know and yeah and then and exactly and there's just there's that little thing that you're keeping from them and you know you're keeping it from them and because you know that you are they can feel that on you they can read that tension and then they start doing things that maybe they don't want to do because of feeling that tension it's like this push and pull that starts it's, to it's yeah. like this crazy almost magic communication born yes. of willful miscommunication yes yes yeah. and but you know what though what i love about that and the way that we're talking about it now 
I kind of like your read on it, Garrett, because that, to me, bolsters the point of the end in that I now believe that their relationship is one that is worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. It is worth them doing the work because, at least on that degree, they are simpatico. They mm-hmm. do have that connection. Um, he's probably going to have to get like some lifts so that he's not so much shorter <laughs> than her. But um, I think that... No. <laughs> um, uh, I gotta I say, that big, that big positive point in this movie... Big positive point in this movie is he was willing to play his own height. Yeah, it's, In the toy store at the end, you can actually see some forced perspective to close that gap. Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still, though, this is not an ego uh, thing for him. Like You would never get that in a Mission Impossible movie, but right, you would get right. that here. Um, this is pre, you know, Tom Cruise I was as very the, the brand. That he played his own height because I think mm-hmm. that speaks. Actually, I think that yeah, that, that speaks, speaks a lot the to the Bill character that he's smaller than his wife. You know, but for them to have that connection, where yes, it takes this weird abrasive moment of just aggressive miscommunication to open that up. I think that if they are communicative, this movie purchase. I, I can purchase the idea that if they were communicative, they can actually be happily ever after if they're willing to continue to do the work. Mm-hmm. I do think that they're a strong couple. Mm-hmm. And I also think, too, that one of the reasons that they're strong is at least before this happened, if you look at the party sequence, they are relatively comfortable with them each being flirtatious, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is not necessarily an unhealthy thing. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think that there is all the pieces there to suggest that they are a functional, like a, a not dysfunctional couple. So should they choose to to be that way? I, I kind mm-hmm. of agree with you. I mean, isn't there a, isn't there a line like really early in this movie about like all relationships are built on a little deceit or something like that? Oh, um, it was she was talking to the guy, the really creepily aggressive yes, dude. Yes, yes. Oh, the Hungarian. Yeah. The Hungarian. And she you know, shows the ring and says, you know, I, I'm married, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he tells the story of like, well, back in the day, the reason you would get married was because that essentially, you know, pops the cherry. And then from there, you're free to do whatever you want. And I think it's him that says like, you know, marriage is important because, or is it, I, I could be wrong that it's him, I think but it's I think him. he I think says right. like something, the, the thing about marriage is that the only way for it, to, you know, it, it invites deception. Yeah. It invites deception from both parties. Yeah, but I, for, I, I, I forget the it is something it like that. It's, it's something to the effect of like, you know, all relationships are built on on sort of ever increasing deceits by like either party, basically. But um, he specifically says marriage. I remember yeah, him specifically yeah. saying like You're marriage, right. be, like almost because it's an unbreachable contract that invites the idea that to do anything freedom based, you're going to have to do some deception. Right. And as it as it were by the end of this movie, at least as I choose to read it, is that they're realizing that's not the case. They can actually yep. both have what they want sexually if they just say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The quote that uh, the, the wonderfully named Sander Zavost uh, <laughs> is, um, don't you think one of the charms of marriage is that it makes deception a necessity for both parties? Yes. May I ask why a beautiful woman who could have any man in this room wants to be married? And Alice says, why shouldn't she? And Sandor retorts, is it as bad as that? And she it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. as good as that. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. And that, that's right. Yeah, I I think that's so interesting. Now, I, guys, I really do want to talk about that ending because I'm I'm very I wanted to say upfront that I'm very much with I think both of your interpretations. That for one, I loved the ending. The fact that the last line is what it is was like laugh out loud, funny, but also like very powerful because having she's been being honest long, again and having mm-hmm. been in a long term relationship. 
it's a very real thing that sometimes you have these really rough patches and these really, you know, these, these, just these kind of lengthy, you know, sometimes days at a time, sometimes even longer, just sort of, what are we doing? Do we, are we really in this? Like what's going on? And you honestly get to the end of it and sometimes you just got to fuck. And yeah. sometimes that takes care of everything. You know what I mean? Like you have to consummate. That's right. the, yeah. And I, so I really like that the movie kind of builds to that because that feels very honest to the way and that it's also very in tune with the skewed sense of humor that this movie, this mm-hmm. is this time around. This is like, like I said, I think the fourth time watching it, this movie is yeah. very funny. It's super funny, dude. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I, I thought this movie was very funny and, and in like a but lot of ways. Darkly so. I mean, yeah. the yeah. whole subplot with uh, the costumer and Lily yes. Sobieski, that's yes. fucking dark yes like yes dark but man is it hilarious it's really funny <laughs> it's uh, fucking crazy but well, the, fucking the, the whole through line for the character of bill hartford is predicated on a joke which is that this incredibly attractive man completely fails to commit adulterately <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> even when he has all the opportunity to do so yeah. And part of yeah. it is because sometimes he self-thwarts, sometimes yeah. he thwart, he's thwarted by external circumstances, but he always has the opportunity to return to the place and right the wrong and try to commit adultery a second time, but he <laughs> still fails to do so. Yeah, yeah. That's very I have a plot question for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So the, the prostitute, I forget her name. Dom- Was it? Domino. Domino, that's it. Mm-hmm. She's also a bounty hunter. Um, <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> she, oh, that's Domino. Um, do, do we think that she really did get that diagnosis? Because okay, when, yeah, he, yes, first, when he first walks in, her roommate is very aggressively trying to fuck him based on the whole idea of she said you were really good to her last night. Right. Um, we don't know whether that means like I don't know whether she knows that he paid without getting services. I don't know if she's assuming that he has HIV as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she has HIV and mm-hmm. therefore doesn't mind fucking him. I don't mm-hmm. know what the actual facts of that situation are based on the behaviors because she only even tells him about that diagnosis after he rejects her advances. I, I I don't you, have an answer. What do you guys think? I have no clue. You're, you're getting to, I think, I think you're dancing around. I have a bigger question, actually, that is very specifically related to this. Hit it. And hit it's going to go, it's going to go right to the question I was going to ask about the ending. So, Bill discovers the secret society, right? And the secret society can't, basically can't let Bill leave, right? Like, that's their thing is because we can't have an outsider. An outsider will out us. So that can't happen, right? And then Bill does leave. And then the rest of the movie is every single interaction he had leading up to getting to the secret society gets weirdly inverted post him leaving. When he returns to the costumer, he even comments on, you are literally going to call the cops on those guys. What are you doing just hanging out with them and treating them like they're fine? We've made an arrangement. It's a business. Even the Alan Cumming character, again, he's definitely coming on to Bill, but he has a very strange interaction with Bill. Wait, he, tells he doesn't Bill, give him the information up front. No, he does not. He needs to be coached, and he, yeah. But he's there, and every single person that he goes back to meet has, like, a very distinctly kind of weird interaction with him 
that ultimately led me to believe, and I don't, again, this is another thing that I think the movie really leaves on the table. I don't know that we have evidence for either way, but it led me to believe that this secret society had spent the rest of that night tracing him and cutting all those ties to the point that I didn't even think about this until literally 24 hours after watching the movie. I got done with the movie. I said to Tori, wow, I love that ending because I love the implication. I was like, that's how relationships are. You, sometimes you got to fuck it out. Like, that's how it is, right? Like, I love, 24 hours later. <laughs> that should be the tagline. Eyes yeah. wide shut. Yeah. Sometimes you got to fuck it out. <laughs> right. 24 hours Stanley later, Kubrick's I'm final I masterpiece. Yeah. I, I literally woke up like in the middle of the night and was like, wait a second. Did his wife get contacted by the group too? And she now has decided she doesn't care. This is all over. That like whatever they've been doing to everybody else and trying to get them to sort of cut ties with Bill and just make sure this is all clean cut. We don't want any more questions asked. They got to her too. And now she's done asking questions and he's just going to be able to get away with like he can just ride off into the sunset. That's fascinating. Does well, any of this read to you guys? Well, I'm gonna th- I'm gonna say this rather than respond like explicitly to your to what you're saying there, yes. I'm gonna pose I'm gonna bring something up as uh, in the form of a question, which is how do you think the mask, which curiously went missing when he returned the costume to uh, Mr. Milich's uh, yes. costume shop, how did it get on the pillow yes. when he comes back uh, in the final scene or the the like the third to the last scene? I wondered this too, Dan. That was like kind of another sub thought I was having where I was like, is his wife somehow part of this thing too? And so she got her hands on the mask from the party or is there some other way? Did they, again, did they come to contact her and they were like, here's this mat, you know, like this is their I evidence like, for your husband was here with us, you know? Mm-hmm. I like the ambiguity of the mask placement. I don't yes. think that there actually is an answer. I think that we are meant to question whether she is involved I think we are meant to question whether or not uh, Domino's disappearance is orchestrated, whether or not her roommate is a plant that's just saying, hey, this is how it is. This is me essentially confirming that you don't come back, but also trying to get a couple bucks first. Um, I think all of that tracks. And I think that if we look at the text of the movie, all of those answers are simultaneously true and untrue because it's ambiguous. Um, Personally, I don't like to think that his wife was involved. Right. Um, I do believe that Domino's disappearance is probably uh, purposeful by the group. I don't think his wife was involved. I do think that the mask was put there, as Sidney Pollack said, to scare him from saying anything. Right. And to kind of, because he sees that mask and that's when he starts crying and says, I will tell you everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't think that. But if someone tied to the movie said oh no it was explicitly it's explicit that she's that she was there that night mm-hmm. um i you wouldn't have to change an ounce of the movie for that to to track yeah, yeah. I mean, it's my it, personal preference <laughs> to the themes of the movie that they have a strong relationship that she was not there yes but mm-hmm. um that's why but i, I sort mean, of prefaced, it could go either way yeah that's why i prefaced all this by saying i kind of ag- i like mostly agree with your guys interpretation of the ending because i really like that too i think that's like that feels very real to to you know lived life and long relationships you know but this movie has a fucking secret society in it that i think pretty explicitly seems to be fucking with bill's life and yeah. so like it it occurred to me literally like in the dead of sleep i was like oh god they got to his wife too 
you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it's well, it, it's weird because you know maybe if we saw this in 1999, we would kind of just think that you know it was borderline fantastical in the sort of conspiratorial edges that are going on around the movie, or the conspiratorial plot threads that may or yes. may not be happening off screen. It, it, it's tough that now that we live in the era of uh, of Epstein and the yeah. post Epstein world to like think that you know maybe there is something like this that is actually happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Bohemian you know, Grove. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it, but the, I guess the reason why though I pose, uh, I respond to your read with yeah. a question is just because I don't like the idea of sort of either like shutting down or like maybe fully on agreeing with everyone else's interpretations of this movie because it's it's weird for a movie that has such a strict linearity and also a fairly like detailed a b plot Mm -hmm. that it is so suggestive i mean the movie's a whole basically is a tease i mean yeah yeah it has all these provocations and sort of this like brilliant use of kind of like off screen not space but like off screen plot if you will mm-hmm. like there's clearly like something greater going on there you never get <laughs> so you're saying the whole movie's foreplay and the suggested fucking that happens during the credits we never yeah. get to see. <laughs> if if you want to look at it I mean actually I know uh, it's a joke but I, oh I know it's a joke but I'd say like nonetheless that kind of logic is a good way to think about how this movie is operating in terms yes. of being a narrative delivery device yeah, I mean it, it. It's it's, and I know that frustrates some because some people could say, well, if the movie is just going to imply or just tease, you know, a whole bunch of threads, then then like you know, what's what's it ultimately saying? Is it even mm-hmm. saying much of anything? But mm-hmm. I feel like you know, cinema is to a certain extent kind of you know, you know, I mean, it is literally a fantasy projection. I mean, it is mm-hmm. you know, projecting light onto a screen and then you know. Like it's basically creating an image that isn't there. You know, it needs to be movie magic. It's movie magic, as you would say. And we're going to project onto the movie in terms of the experience that we bring to watching it because it's so like you know. I mean, that lead character is almost kind of a blank slate, so that for the like the viewer to occupy that space in terms of his experience. You know, I just I feel like you know it's this is very much a movie that you know what you get out of it ultimately depends on what you bring into it and if you bring that read if that's the thing that you get out of it I mean who am I to say it's wrong? Oh yeah, I I was actually just more curious like whether you guys whether that tracked with you or I was just like nuts thinking that like no I think it totally tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And Dan, well, because I like that idea is that even with the the knocking some balls around scene. Yeah. You know, and Dan, you're saying that's like gaslighting. I, I I agree that it's gaslighting in that the story that he tells of like, no, nothing happened to her. She was a junkie. She overdosed. What do you want? Like, this is coincidence is very believable. But also the doubt. Trusting this guy. He's talking about how much he loves his wife. And then he's got a lady ODing, a completely nude woman ODing in his room while he's awkwardly putting suspenders on over his bare body. It's, it doesn't like, I don't necessarily think that this is a guy whose words are bond. Um, But there's no, there's nothing in the movie that could definitively put me on either side of that line. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so it it validates all those reads. I totally. And I was going to say Santelli, like I, I, to your point, I mean, I loved this movie and I loved the experience of watching it. Mm-hmm. And really what I mean by that is that it's such a suggestive experience. It's just like you're saying, it's such a suggestive experience. And again, it's like maybe it's just living in the landscape of current movies where I feel like there are no suggestive movies. All movies mm-hmm. really beat me over the head with exactly what they're about. It's wonderful to see a movie that just leaves that on the table for me to just sit with and mm-hmm. just 
whatever it is, whatever I take from it is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I like that yeah, experience. It's a three-hour movie, but you got another 24 hours of entertainment value out of it. Oh, my God, yeah. Also, on it. For and it plays movie, fair with the viewer, too. Yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, this thing watches for a three-hour yeah. Like, for me, I had... It's a smooth I, three. I just watched a three-hour movie recently that is a huge... I'll just say it, Seven Samurai, that everybody loves, and I, I liked. It was good. I, I'm not I'm here to shit on Seven Samurai, but it felt like a fucking three and a half hour movie to me. This movie felt like it was 10 minutes long. I could have watched yes. this movie twice back yeah. to back. This one moves. It just it's, fucking it's, moves. It, it's weird for a movie that really is not like predicated on any kind of like action or propulsion, just how seductive it is in terms of a viewing experience. And part of it could be the kind of like teasing element to it. A part, the other part is also the fact that it's a really terrifically edited movie. I mean, yes. not just in terms of scenes, like, I mean, scenes are like, I mean, there's a very like direct arc to scenes in terms of the development and the edit, uh, or at least in terms of developing the drama through editing in addition to performance. But it's just, it has this very, very strange, just like, I, I actually can't even really think of the way. I have a great it. example. The drive to the orgy is the strangest little feat of editing that happens. It All suddenly becomes like a Jarmish movie for a second, where it's just crossfades of driving. Now, a Jarmish movie would go into the cockpit. Not cockpit, <laughs> the driver's seat. Well, it's not a plane. <laughs> I had that. It's, it's a Mad Elf. It's 11%. So even though I'm halfway through one beer, I'm a little loose. Um, but yeah, that's like this, right in the middle of that movie, that should be jarring, because suddenly it becomes a series of crossfades of just a car driving. Fading into a car driving, fading into a car driving. But I was watching it, and it was almost like putting me to sleep before it was about to scare the fucking hell out of me. And that's when it occurred to me. I was like, man, the editing on this is so tight. And it's not necessarily consistent in how it's edited from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. From act to act, that sort of changes. Uh, like, for example, like, like uh, the editing in the pot scene mm -hmm. is wildly different from the editing in the costume rental sequence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i also i will say that one of my favorite moments in the movie is when she breaks down laughing during the pot scene yeah. we stop going from these weird off-center presidential zooms to just full handheld at that moment and mm -hmm. it is stark and it works and mm -hmm. i don't love handheld but yeah. it works Mm. Well, actually, yeah, that, so, that shot, the camera is on a tripod, but they have it on like a, a weird 50, 60 millimeter lens so that you can get the jarring tilts and ups, uh, tilt ups oh, and downs. That's yeah. probably why I like it, because it's yeah. not actually handheld. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I get what you say. I mean, that, that, like the pot smoking scene, yes, it does alternate between these sort of like various internal close-ups of one person's face and then the other person like almost like we're a third spectator just like plunked in the middle and we're almost like turning mm -hmm. our heads consistently but it does this thing but, i'm gonna do it with my screen where they're here talking they're not center but it does like the presidential zoom as he's talking to her over here you mm -hmm. know what i'm saying it's fascinating absolutely and then you know well it's well at least in terms of film style it juxtaposes sort of like traditional like sort of scene building either shot reverse shot or sometimes like montage approach with the long take mise-en-scene aesthetic that you get in Mr. Milich's costume scene just to use that as an example like yeah. there are I believe because I haven't watched this in about a year and a half honestly I I think there are <laughs> I would think five, you watched it last night <laughs> I think I think there are five shots leading up to the moment uh when uh the the scene i think there are actually five shots in that entire scene because once they get down into the shop that whole first like a the the, the main area where visitors would like the, occupy the space 
that is all one, I believe, one shot. It's just various pans from, you know, them entering the shop and then going over to the uh, the counter and then they step back into the next room and then we cut like a two minute like like dolly shot of them just like looking at all the places around before you flip around to the reverse shot to see the office sets in the back there so that's like three shots there and the reason i'm being explicit about this is it just just trying to illustrate just how weird the pace is in this movie in terms of like it's very it's a very hypnotic watch but when you stop to think about it it's very much experimenting with style in terms of you know long take versus the sort of traditional dialogue tete-a-tete like Mm -hmm. cut 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 i think that's probably the point i was trying to make is that the editing is not necessarily consistent stylistically yes and the shot choice is not consistent stylistically Mm mm-hmm but it's it's just interesting that Kubrick still. I mean, part of it could also just be the fact that he had so much time to edit this movie and sort of find the rhythm in there. Mm. And not that he didn't have the rhythm in mind when he was shooting it, but you know, I mean, movies are ultimately made in the edit, and he would yeah. to like he famously said, like you know, the reason why he loves movies as an art is he looks forward to when he can cut the movie more than when he can shoot the movie. Dude, in that documentary work. I was talking about, they showed the editing suite that he had in his house. <laughs> Show and it's like one of those on things that you're just like, oh, <laughs> like it looks like Neil Perch drum set, but in <laughs> editing where you're just like, he's got everything and he just would sit there all day. Just, <laughs> it, it was fascinating. Did you happen to see the photos of when he was editing Barry Lyndon? Um, I've never I seen don't it. know, maybe. Because he's on the, he's at his flatbed. And apparently because he was a huge cat lover, he always felt guilty about the fact that he couldn't spend time with his animals when he was making the movie. So when he is editing his movies on his flatbed, just like, so like basically meaning that, you know, you have exposed negative things there. There are like three cats sitting on the flatbed, just watching this film, like going through the actual, uh, <laughs> the, the, the actual, um, the actual flatbed monitor. You're just like, yeah. What? Yeah. I feel like as a cat owner, anything that has even the remote chance of dangling, uh, you have to make peace with the fact that it will ultimately be destroyed. <laughs> and so the idea that there are spools of film hanging around cats just brings such tension into my soul. <laughs> I know. I also love the idea of like, you know, the whole thing with film is like, oh man, those prints, they get old eventually. They get hairs in them. They get scratched up. It's like, yeah, that dude's movie was made that way. <laughs> like, yeah, coat my boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's just, oh, like, it's just the edit, the edit of the movie. It's, it's weird because it is such an assured movie in terms of its very deliberate pace. I mean, it fluctuates pace, but it has a very sort of like, like, you know, it does commit to a certain kind of like slow unfurling of information. Like it doesn't give you the kind of, you know, you know, that we're at the 20 minute mark in. So we got to throw a little like kernel of information out your way. It's just the slow unraveling, you know, just the fact that it does, you know, at least or it did for you, Garrett, that if it, that it maintains your attention for the two hours and 46 minutes that it goes wow. on. is just like, it really can't be explained. It's just like something that you need to really experience. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I'm, I, I I wrote this in my letterbox review too. It is the dumbest, simplest thing you could say about a movie, but I genu I mean it in the most genuine way possible with this movie. I enjoyed the experience of watching this movie mm-hmm. like a lot, and it was totally different than I thought it would be from what I knew. Dan just sent us a picture of a cat laying across his head. <laughs> the editing suite. I love it. <laughs> 
Uh, no, this you know, movie totally watches. You think it would yeah. be like art house homework, but it's yep. actually like a really compelling. Like it works as a thriller. I was very <laughs> worried about him. I think it speaks to how good uh, Doctor Bill is as an audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's you know he's a compelling character, but he's a really good audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said earlier, Garrett, I think anybody who has ever just dealt with another person before in any capacity can find something to relate to here yeah. that comes through him. I care about him. I see myself in him, and I don't really see myself as that much like him. Yeah. But also the interesting is because he is a good audience surrogate, it allows Kubrick uh, opportunities to sort of manip- uh, toy with the audience's emotions, not only how we relate to the movie, but how we relate to the character, because it's highlighted, a lot of the character's flaws are very much highlighted explicitly in his interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. And because, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, not that, you know, I mean, obviously characters are flawed by their very nature in movies because that's what generates the drama. Yeah, but it's just because a lot of the conflict, inner conflict with the character is so sort of psychosexually oriented or psychologically oriented because he is essentially our, we're projecting our self-image onto that character. It allows Kubrick subliminally the, the, uh, the, let me rephrase that sentence. It, it forces the, to question how not how they're relating to the character but how what they're seeing in the character relates to who they are as individuals so it works on you on that sort of psychological dimension that not all movies are able to get at and that that's like a very interesting like you know way of directing the audience is the way you direct the way they relate to the character i feel like you just helped me with something here dantelli because one thing i did want to talk about is Cruz's performance in this movie, which I, I do think is is good, but it's a very interesting, unique Cruz performance. I mean, when I think about Cruz, this is going to sound strange because he's just he's mostly like at this point, like a blockbuster actor. You know what I mean? But I actually do kind of think about a guy that like is always bordering on chewing the scenery. Mm-hmm. Like he's not quite, but he's like he, he'll go pretty big and it works. It's like one of the things I like about Cruz is he'll go pretty big and it will work. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. he never gets there in this movie. He's actually anti that in this movie. Pretty much every time I would expect a living, breathing human being to have an enormous reaction to something that's happening to him, he has almost no reaction at all. I he wrote like, down a line. He seems uh, to like not eat, like he's literally at an orgy with a secret society and seems to be like, huh, oh, what's going on here? You know what I mean? His like, eyes are terrifying behind that mask. Yeah. And not because he seems menacing, but because he seems vulnerable. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But it's like a clueless vulnerability where it's like part ego, but I think almost just part, it's like part ego, part curiosity, but mostly just complete fucking cluelessness that he's looking around at this like clearly potentially dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally think that. It was, it was like down. really strange. Like the longer mm-hmm. the movie went on, I was like, this guy just doesn't react to anything. Like nothing he, moves. He had him. one moment where he did like ah, ta Tom Cruise stuff that <laughs> yeah. made me laugh. But it's a great line that also I think speaks to uh, what you're saying there. Oh, I lost my note. There it is. Uh, when there, it's during the pot scene where she's like, "Why can't you give me a straight fucking answer?" And he goes, uh, "I." I was under the impression that that is what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> and the yeah, way yeah. you said it was so <laughs> Tom Cruise-y. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. Like That's like a moment where he's he's almost trying to claim that he's not having a reaction by having right. a reaction. So it's like very not that big Tom Cruise that, that we've right. come to expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, because even if you watch like uh, 
I, I don't know. I mean, fucking cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> Garbage movie that is so <laughs> much fun to watch. Um, when, when he pours, it rains. It rains. Yeah, that, who, who put that on Twitter the other day? That was so funny. Yeah, I think Matt um, Garrett posted that poster the other day. That's what it was. Oh, it was Matt who did it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, that's a movie where it's like that movie kind of. It's a very unsuccessful uh, movie, if you ask yeah. me, but it is a lot of fun to watch. But where it lands, it lands on Tom Cruise being a super fucking star. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's it's him being, I'm the star. Mm-hmm. And like that's not what's happening in Eyes Wide Shut. Right. That's that oh. is what's happening to a degree in every Mission Impossible to a fault <laughs> in Mission Impossible Two, as we talked about. <laughs> but like, uh, which we should talk about a little bit. How it's weird that he can play sexual in this after we spent the last episode talking about how unsexual he is in that. It's very it. strange. But he's not playing a superstar here. He's yeah. actually acting. Um, you would like it's not the best movie, but I did like it. That movie American Made that he did. Yeah, I want to see that. Mm-hmm. Just because it was a real quick reminder that when he's tasked with actually really acting, he's quite good. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Not that he's not acting in Mission Impossible. Ethan Hunt is a very compelling character, but he is sort of whatever you need him to be in the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's a compelling actor, and Eyes Wide Shut's like the last time I like, can remember it not being about Tom Cruise and his abs, and it's more about Tom Cruise and his skills. Well, this yeah. is. Well, he also made up. Oh, go ahead. Say, oh. Tilly, this is all you. Go for it. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll be very fair. But I was just going to say, you know, he did make this at a time, though, when he was trying to sort of move more into, I don't want to call it respectable, but I'd say, like, he was trying to move more into sort of dramatic acting because in the same Yeah, year, less blockbustery. Magnolia. Yep. And, you know, he, um, oh, no, that was still a couple of years. Oh, Vanilla Sky was a couple of years, you yep. know. After that, that was of that era, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, no, I agree with you because you know, the, the, I guess the arc of most Tom Cruise movies is they're they're people who are awesome, but yeah. they don't, but they have sort of a crisis in which they think maybe they're not quite as awesome as they once thought they were. <laughs> that you is know, the they best to, they need way to, spend... to describe Ethan Hunt's motivation, one hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so basically, they need to spend the movie. With the help of others who solely devote their like time to bettering his <laughs> yeah. agenda, yes. not only realizing that oh he is I am awesome, but he that he's more awesome than he really thought he was to begin with. So I mean that's yeah. kind of like same basically. old Ethan. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh. that is the Santelli. That is brilliant. That that's is the, the funniest way to it. put that because yep. you're right. Uh, he's motivated by altruism, but let's be honest, he's motivated because he wants to be the best. I'll give credit where credit's due. That 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 uh that I believe came from the people at Scarecrow Video. Uh, okay. when, uh, they, they talked about Tom Cruise on one of their podcasts a uh, long, long time back, uh, back in their original podcast, and that was the best synopsis, uh, like synopsizing of the arc of a Tom Cruise character that I've heard, just because it applies to pretty much everything from Days of Thunder. The Top Gun, the Cocktail, to the Ethan Hunt characters in Mission Impossible. Uh, Hell, it pr- kind of applies to Magnolia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so so you know, credit to I believe that was Matt Lynch and Kevin Clark at Scarecrow Video were the ones who uh, first put that out there. But I feel like that's that very funny. Just like a, a really good, you know, way of looking at the Tom Cruise blockbuster performances versus him and Eyes Wide Shut, in which yeah. the performance is modified. It, it's much more in the vein of a. I mean, it's definitely a Kubrick performance in the sense that there are two different kinds of Kubrick performances. There's the Jack Nicholson quasi-kabuki role in which it's very exaggerated. Oh, wow. and, uh, 
or you get the kind of like almost Bressonian uninflected performance of Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon or Matthew Modine as Joker in Full Metal Jacket or Kira Delea in 2001 A Space Odyssey in which it's kind of like like literally a presence that we occupy, our minds occupy in terms of watching and relating to them so that yeah. we can sort of have a dir- we can share the direct experience of what's happening to that character. That, this helps me That's so much, Santelli, because I really <laughs> did like it. Was not a pro- it, obviously it was not a problem for me in the movie. I like really really enjoyed this, but I was just so taken aback by how I don't know unremarkable his performance kind of is in this, right? And how unfazed he seems to be by things that, like, if I saw them, I would be like, "What the fuck is going on?" Like, I would have yeah. such a big reaction to them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that, well, I want to say one controversial thing real fast. Uh, I think Full Metal Jacket is probably my favorite war movie, as it were. And Mm -hmm. I am of the mind that the second, you know, since everyone's obsessed with dividing that in the first half, I think the second half is infinitely better than the training camp part. Mm. But I think that's a damn near perfect movie. But as part of uh, Tom Cruise's subdued reactions to crazy things, I would say that my favorite scene in all of Eyes Wide Shut is when he drives back up to the gates and they just unceremoniously hand him the most terrifying <laughs> note ever. Yes. Yep. His reaction to that is definitely one of like detached, like, okay, whatever. But credit to Cruz, that's the moment where you can see in his face, like, this fucker is terrified. Yeah, that's yeah. the moment where the fear got put in him big. Yeah. Um, without that moment, the mask would not have triggered him to confess, I don't mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. But that moment there was the moment where he realized, like, this is actually bigger than me, and despite the fact that I previously thought that my league was all-encompassing, this is out of my league. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a terrifying moment, and I love, too, in hindsight, finding that that moment only exists because Sidney Sydney Pollock likes him so much, so he was right, giving him right. just one more piece of fuck off, dude. We don't want to hurt your kid. You, mm-hmm. you just reminded me that I uh, this is related to something I asked a while ago, which is like, how deep does this conspiracy go? So, you know, Pollock gives that implication that like, look, you don't want to know who was in that room with you. Like, yeah, it's it's people that you see on TV. It's your politicians. It's like his implication is that it's like it's people that you just you would not want to know that that's like what they're involved in. But I do have kind of a question of like and I was curious if I, I don't know, like if anybody knows, like who actually performs some of those masked parts. I I started to wonder at a certain point, like, is Alan Cumming in this group? Is the, is... Uh, oh, he wants the, to be, the, if he's not. Is the costume shop owner in this group? Like, I started to wonder if, like, just literally everybody in New York that Tom Cruise interacts with is actually a part of the secret society, like, except for Tom Cruise. Do you know what I mean? I, like, I started wondering, like, guy how deep does this go? Right, because yeah, he yeah, was yeah. in bed at the time. But well. yeah. I do have a weird theory that I have. I don't think it holds water, but I'll throw it out there about the costume guy. Yeah. Do we think that maybe he knew those guys were there with his daughter and that whole thing was just a role play? Oh, interesting. I, I, that was something because like, mm. it, it speaks to an insidiousness that this movie is courting that mm-hmm. he didn't call the cops because they were able to line his pockets right and he's whoring right. out his daughter, which is horrifying. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I can't decide if it's more or less horrifying that like, then yes, he's whoring out his daughter for lack of a better term, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I mean, like, 
you know, he's he's selling his daughter and they negotiated a better price. That's scary. But to me, it's even scarier that he's selling his daughter and also agreed to partake in a I'm going to I'm going to like cuck you guys because that's oh, what you're yeah. paying for kind of thing. Right. Now, granted, that's another thing that I was just asking because I was watching it this time around from an inquisitive viewpoint as opposed yeah. to letting it wash over me. But well, um, I but again, it speaks I had to quite... the idea. I feel like every scene does have that weird passive suggestion that there's more. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's enough, you know? I mean, I even, I, I know that part of this is just meant to be like, oh, you know, the the every character in the movie is just like, wow, what a hot guy. I'd fuck him. Like, I know that that's yeah. like a little bit what's going on here. But I thought that like, even the Mina Savari character seemed to be a little suggestive of like, she might've seen him. She might've been at that party and seen him there. And that's why- Lily Sobieski. She's, oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. Yep. <laughs> Uh, same era, same era. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like she gives him some eyes where it's like I know that could just be like another like oh it's just another woman that sees him and is like I want. But it's fuck a him. knowing look. Yeah. But there's like a mm-hmm. suggestive like she might have been at that party too. You know what I mean? It, like yeah. I started to wonder like how deep does this shit like really go? Even though I don't think that's actually important, you know. But mm-hmm. I think it's important in that I that's almost what like. I don't want to call this movie a horror movie, but there are scary elements and the fear mm-hmm. comes from the pretty consistent suggestion of you don't know that person. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't know that person. And like and that's why I think it's that's why I choose to to read the the wholesome ending that they're going to work through their problems and they're going to fuck and they're going to be in love and they're going to do that because it suggests the idea of like yeah, you're not actually going to know anybody. You're going to die without ever knowing anybody. That's just, that's just you know, it's existential. You can only see what you can see. Yeah. It's scary when you consider that you really don't know anybody and you, you just don't know what they're up to. But I like the idea that as a counter to that, the movie ends at a point where it says, but it's valuable to make the effort to know somebody and it's valuable to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to be known by somebody. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that communicative work, you can, you'll never get to a hundred percent, but you can get to 99% and that's really good. And nobody's mm-hmm. killing each other or overdosing in each other's hotel rooms at, <laughs> at 99. You know, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Like, yeah, it, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I like that wholesome read, but that, that wholesome yeah. read doesn't come true. doesn't come through unless you're utterly devastated by the mistrust and cynicism towards every interaction you have. Cause you don't know. And as somebody who's like a natural born mistrustful cynic, mm-hmm. like it really upsets me to have that. But I like that hope. It it fills the idea. It, it it just validates the idea that this communication's worthwhile. Well, well, I think it has hope for them as a couple. Yes, um, yes. Which is interesting because I feel like Kubrick's generally his because the arc of his characters tends to be people who are organic people who ultimately become mechanized because that's kind of not, you know, here. I mean, it's here. It's, it's here in a sort of like a, a sublimated sense, um, mm-hmm. but which I'll get to in a moment. But I think the ending has, is a bit positive for the couple, but I do think what's interesting is that the arc of this movie is while there is some kind of return to normalcy for them, it's just that normalcy has been perverted because of a greater understanding of the world in which those characters live. Oh yeah. They've and, eaten from the tree of knowledge now. Mm-hmm. And as regards to whether or not it's a horror film, like, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, it, I think it would be foolish to write like out and out say like it is a horror film with a capital H in terms oh, of yeah, what yeah. we come to think of in, in terms of genre expectations. There are scary elements for sure. Is really the point. Yeah. 
the kind of horror that I do relate it to is like the old Val Luton horror films from the 1940s at RKO, like Cat People or I Walked with the Zombie, or the movie <laughs> that this people. movie that this has a lot of uh, uh, not similarities, but I'd say like that that you could really compare this to is Val Luton's The Seventh Victim, which is also about uh, which is about about a group of Satanists in Greenwich Village, uh, and is probably one of the bleakest movies that like was ever made in classical Hollywood. Sold. So, yeah, so I, done. I've only seen cat people. <laughs> well, well, I'll say this for, for the, both the listeners and yourselves here. This movie is now streaming on the Criterion channel as part of their Queer Fear series. So, right on. Uh, this weekend. Get, yeah. Sold. Man, or, Criterion's yep. been knocking it out of the park lately. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Or, of course, you can come yeah, Every uh, month, I've video. been like, oh, shit, man. Criterion's doing it. Yeah, but yes. just tell I've you, never been that, to Viva Video. I need a car. I, yep. I uh,. We will be back soon. Dan actually went out of his way to get Tori and I a movie into their library so that we could watch it. So we're, we're, nice. we'll be returning there soon. Yeah. Zombie Can I Death ask what movie it is? A zombie, uh, Death, zombie House. Death House. It's the only <laughs> movie. <laughs> it's the only movie directed by. Uh, and wow, now I'm not going to even be able to remember his fucking John name. Saxon. Now I'm trying. Oh, John Saxon. <laughs> That's right. What? Yep. Yeah. Oh. R.I.P. Right, he was uh, a big loss this year. Tony Francesco's yeah. in this movie as well, I believe. Um, yeah, it's it's I'm pretty it's, curious. Yeah, yeah I, I'm down. I haven't been able to watch it. It's I, I apparently this movie had like a 1.5 million dollar budget, so yeah. I'm like, I I kind I kind of gotta see because from I mean I'm sure it's fun, but from looking at the stills. It oh. looks like a film mirage production, but from Joe D'Amato and Claudio Fergasso from like the late '80s, like it does not look like oh. it has like a 1.5 mil behind it. If you yeah, you got that Saxon read, name, you start commanding them dollars. <laughs> if you read about it, Saxon himself is like, yeah, that that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> I can hear him saying it exactly like that too. Yeah. <laughs> he's like Nancy. It didn't turn out the way he calls everybody Nancy because uh, yeah. I associate him with with that first name on Elm Street. Yeah, I but, was. But uh, anyway, this... yeah. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, no, I, I was just gonna say I, I just recently got a uh, uh, Blu-ray player, so I'm finally no yeah. longer between physical media players. So I was able to dig out my old collection, and I've been, you know, against the better interests of my wallet, certain things, but um, you know, just to have. But it's great to finally have a physical media player, which means that once I have the ability to get to Viva. I will be uh, uh, exploiting Viva's selection for all it's worth. Dan, I, I can't recommend it enough. It was the first time I've been inside of a video store in well over a decade, and it was nice. like it was such a joyous experience. I, I and and you know to to let this just be a nice Viva Video plug on the show. Like I, I it, uh, Ardmore, Pennsylvania, Viva Video. It's it's a great shop, and like I, you know, I got to walk in there, have like a half hour conversation with Santelli. Tori and I had like a vague idea of like in and we walked out of there with like six movies and i'm damn like five of them were like the best things i watched this year Hell you know yeah. what i mean it was like it was exactly what i miss about video stores just a knowledgeable staff that i can walk in and be like this is how i'm feeling right now and they're like oh try this like look at this yeah, yeah. you know and they I like this. And they have well, such an like extensive this. library that i could do that probably for the rest of my life and never see everything that they have you know Mm-hmm. When I was in London, I went to BFI South Bank like five different times just because even though I was supposed to be having a European vacation, I just kept going to the movies. <laughs> um, I mean, I still did a lot of stuff. But at the BFI, they had a pop-up video store. 
mm-hmm. and it was just a fake video store. It real VHS tapes, but it was like they had snacks and stuff, but it was designed to look like a video store. And then they just had beanbag chairs, uh, VHS players, and TVs, and you could just plop up and grab. So I was watching uh, the Jackie Chan, Danny Aiello movie, The Protector. <laughs> I was just watching that on a VHS, sitting there eating corn nuts. And it was like one of those things where I'm like, this is almost there. Yeah, it's catching the vibe of the video store, but alas, it's not the video store because I'm just at a movie theater. And ever since then, it was just one of those things like, man, I I just wondered if I'd ever have that experience back proper. And it seems that if I can get my ass to Viva, I can. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely hook you up with some good stuff. I mean, I, you know, we'll we'll get back to that as I chat in a minute, but I, I remember there when uh, when you guys came in trouble when you got you guys got the hunger cemetery yes, man yes, um mr 45 oh, 45 that's right yep 45 is the now, fucking but... best yeah mr 45 was fucking killer it's one of the best things i watched this year that's I, the I most well-directed piece of trash you'll ever see yep it's so yep. good yeah, That's tremendous. I would agree um, with that, although I just saw Choi Huck's Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, which is an ooh. amazingly directed movie from Hong Kong in the from the early 80s. Uh, it's got a great title. Great yeah. title. Um, it's uh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, we're, I'm going to see if I can get a copy in for Viva sometime soon. Uh, trigger warning, unfortunately, it does have it does open on animal cruelty. Um, okay. So I would, you know, you can audiences out there can choose to engage with it on that basis or not but there's a unfortunate use of hairpins on mice um but um in regards to getting back to eyes wide shut but i would say in terms of a horror film like you know like seventh victim is a good one to look at and to at least see like a predecessor of like the kind of sort of like implied horror that is very much at work in terms of the way as i we talked about earlier how there's kind of like a a conspiracy plot that's never realized but is very heavily suggested throughout uh but of course you know because you know garrett earlier you were talking about the way the back half kind of inverts the structure of the opening half in terms of the 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 dynamics that he has with those characters what's curious though is because this movie does have such a subjective through line because there is hard there is no scene i believe in this movie in which tom cruise is not the center of it because we are sort of experiencing so much of this movie through his eyes Right down to the fact that we share the voyeurism that he has with the orgy scene by occupying his point of view. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that the way we're inferring that back half has a relationship to how he has been basically jarred by this experience that he's had? Like, is, if you get what I'm saying, like, yeah. are, are we reading the scene not in terms of the way that things are happening, or is it through the way that we're experiencing them? By the uh, by, our, the sur- the sort of the surrogate relationship we have with the Cruz character. The surrogate relationship. Have, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think I hear what you're saying that that he has this increasing paranoia post the orgy, and so his interactions with all of those people become increasingly paranoid. Mm-hmm. And whether that's actually what's happening in in the reality of the world, or just his um, uh, just his interpretation of what's happening around him after sort of engaging with that paranoia, basically. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly speak to the scene that we said could be argued as a dream sequence. Yes. If the movie alters its tone to his perspective, mm-hmm. it would certainly strengthen the idea that we talked about, that that scene was quite literally him interpreting what she was saying in a less charitable light. I have a quick question about that particular scene, actually. Is that, and tell me if you guys even clocked this, I, I imagine you did, 
is that the scene that I'm thinking of in my head where it's like the only time that the light coming from the windows is not blue. It looks like actual like sunlight. Do you guys know what I mean? I'm picturing it as blue. Okay. Which there scene, is but I don't know, because there is that standard thing where when it's like kind of dusky, you have that blue glow coming from outside yeah. that that like kind of clashes with the Christmas decor. There's, but it suggests nighttime, but it suggests like urban nighttime. I feel like it's in that scene. It might not be as strong, but it also could just be a fault of my memory. That that That's what I'm trying to remember, because there is one, or at least to me, one that stood out where the light is not blue that is coming through the windows. There is one scene where the light that is coming through the windows feels like just kind of like a natural like dawn sunlight. And it, it was the only time in the movie that I was like, oh, is this maybe a dream? Because this is the only time the light is that color. Every other time it's this blue light coming through the windows that I agree with you, Dan. What I interpreted from that blue light was like, oh, this is the sort of pressure that you sort of feel living in the city where like even in the middle of the day, there's no natural light. It's just this like fake. Yeah. You got neon coming in constantly yeah. beaming through your windows, you know, and so you can never really Eat tell it yeah. is it light is, it, you know, is it nighttime? Is it daytime? That doesn't really exist in, in the big city, you know, because it's just yeah. this constant sort of, but then there's one scene it's the city that where, never like, sleeps. Right. <laughs> or, or, real, or again, in my, in my memory, at least one scene where that is not the case. There's like one scene where it's like, seems like very natural light coming through the windows. And I'm just, Wh- I was wondering if it was that scene. Well, I don't know, Dan. That's that's the thing. Yeah, that's I the thing. Because you could I'm be right, but when like... I picture that dr- the the as we're calling it with yeah. heavy air quotes, the yeah. dream scene. Yeah. Um, I uh, picture that, that scene is all blue light. Okay, blue it lighting. is all blue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah, wondering they, if they lined they shot, it up. They but shot, that's not to say there isn't one that isn't like that. Right. Right. They, the, the, and, and it's very heavily emphasized, maybe symbolic blue light in that scene because they shot that not with the. Uh, with actual like China balls, like throughout the set, not like blasting light through the sort of prop windows that they have and illuminating the faces. Like they, that is a, a very deliberately like, you know, aestheticized scene, at least in terms of like, you know, at least lighting sure. design. So For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt like I noticed that really in most scenes, like most scenes had that kind of like, heavily blue kind of tint to the uh, the light coming through the windows. Yeah, well, part of it's like nighttime light, but also yeah. I think it's a nice contrast to the fact that one of the, I think the dominant color in this movie is probably red, like a crimson red. Mm-hmm. There's almost like a jarring use of red in, in every single scene. It's uh, like a golden and red mix <laughs> that I always feel off of it. Um, and when he's talking to the costumer, they do a lot of fun stuff with the reflection of the diner sign. Yeah, in, as he's talking to him, and then over uh, Doctor Bill's shoulder when we see the opposite of that. Um, but yeah, I think they're yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, I was just curious if that one moment that I noticed of like natural light lined up with what we were thinking of as the dream sequence because that might you know maybe that could lend some credence to like I mean it is the one time that this is like you know lit a little bit differently, but but it sounds like maybe they don't quite line up. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea what scene I'm describing. I really don't. I can't remember which scene it was. <laughs> a lot of scenes in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> movie. We could all, we, you know, yeah, what we could do maybe sometime in the future once this whole... Maybe if we ever get to a post-COVID age, we can all kind of do a commentary track for this movie. Because I, oh, like like I feel like it definitely owes... Like, I mean, part of it is just because, A, you know, I don't know if you've ever recorded commentary tracks for like either 
like either for I like to I don't think you've done it for I like to move movie, but even if you just like want to see if you can extemporize like that for such a long period of time, I feel like we would those like immediate to do it. responses. Uh, you have some of your most interesting responses to that, and they're also like pure and fresh responses. And you know, you know, when we're th- when we're watching movies, we they're think about it a lot of stuff. With inspired by the moment, but also when we watch movies, we think constantly, and a lot of those thoughts sometimes dissipate into the yep. ether. So to maybe get it down uh, onto a commentary track later, you may be able to like sort of find uh, the patterns that you're looking for right now here, Garrett. Yeah, yeah. As we build our Patreon, and I say build with the slowest <laughs> air quotes in the world, yeah. but I think that is something that we're going to look yeah. to do with our Patreon is yep. put up commentary tracks. Out there in the world, there is a uh, based on nothing commentary track of Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage (laughs) that both Garrett and I are featured on. That was a hell of a good time. So uh, we're no stranger to the commentary track, but we have not done a movie movie branded one. And I think that this would absolutely be a fantastic candidate for that. Yes, it would. I'm looking at my notes. Yeah, go ahead. I'm trying to think if there's other things that I that I want to uh, address everything pretty naturally but the two notes that we didn't hit is one is tom cruise does not drink beer on screen well that's one thing (laughs) that i just cannot do both times he cracked a a beer it just looked like he didn't know what to do with it (laughs) um and when he was when he got served a beer at the uh at the uh sonata uh nightclub where nightingale was playing um, he, he like just doesn't know what to do with it. And it was very obvious. He just doesn't drink on screen. Well, and then I just wrote down a really, really fun quote from Sidney Pollock's character during the knock the balls around scene. And, uh, when he's telling him like, uh, you know, just like, let it go. It's all coincidence. He goes, life goes on until it doesn't, but you know that don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. And life, life goes on. It always does. Uh, but until it doesn't until yeah until it, it doesn't. always does until it doesn't yeah. like, but, but you know that don't you and i love that because he is appealing to that brotherhood of like we know things but yeah. he's also appealing to the idea of like you're a doctor you understand death it's chaos you don't know and so it is one of the strongest moments of like what you said dan of him just gaslighting the fuck out of him Mm-hmm. And basically just saying, like, my arms around you, bro. We're both doctors. Come see, come saw. We got this. You know death. I know death. Let's forget about it. Completely, you know, completely just just moving past what he should be saying is, you know death. I know how to make death happen. You know, like, he, and mm-hmm. so, like, he he's just moving past that with, like, some of the smoothest. And, like, you wouldn't even realize you're being gaslit because it seems so empathetic and so fatherly. And, and, you know, for to, to use the term purposely, it seems so patriarchal that mm-hmm. it, it just feels natural. And instead, it's actually quite insidious. And what's interesting, and you could possibly make sort of a feminist read on it from this angle, which is it's a mirror to the scene between Kidman and the Hungarian earlier on in that they're both seduction scenes. It's mm-hmm. just that, you know, because the Alice character, Kidman, is probably the most competent and emotionally intelligent person in the entire movie. She's aware of how she's being played. Whereas Cruz completely still falls under the spell. Like he resists him ultimately, but he still like, you know, lets, lets the Ziggler character get to him. That's true. Cause when she's flirting with that guy, my knee jerk hard coded into my body reaction is, it's it's unfortunately is like man she's really asking for it which is entirely not the case 
because mm-hmm. as it turns out throughout the scene is no, she's controlling the whole thing and she's able to walk away her devotion to her husband and her devotion to her morals like that. She flashes the ring and she gets out and she does it politely and she does it friendly. And it is a personal fault of mine to read that as anything more than just flirtation for the sake of the fun of that. Right. Um, but I love that idea that like, yeah, you're right. Like he's trying to seduce her and she's willing to talk that language, but it's not taking. There's mm-hmm. no situation in which she goes upstairs with that guy. Whereas Tom Cruise's character, Dr. Bill, in every situation, there's always that hinting feeling that he might give in to this. Mm-hmm. He, and which actually, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, the scene where he finds out, finds out, air quoting again, that Domino may have been HIV positive, he immediately gets that cocky feeling of like, looks like I retroactively made the right decision. Yeah. And, and once again, it's like, no, you're just being controlled. And if we are to believe that that is the cult's doing of telling her that, that is the exact reaction that they would want to cultivate in him, right. which is one of, if I don't give in to these weird things and pursue this orgy, everything will be okay. My decision not to have fucked this lady has been validated. So it like pre-validates the decision not to meddle around. And so it's kind of a double thing there. Like on the one hand, it's like, yeah, if they planned it, that is a brilliant psychological move because they know exactly how well they can gaslight him. Mm -hmm. If they didn't plan it, it still speaks to the same idea of like, here's a guy who is not necessarily emotionally in charge. He was about to give her a gift probably because he wanted to, to fuck her. But then when he found out that it was a good idea that he didn't, he gets cocky about it, like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It's right. Yeah, what it's uh, what an amazing characterization. God I damn it, this movie's perfect. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I saw another really funny review of this movie on Letterboxd that speaks to a lot of what you guys are talking about right now, where the person was like, Tom Cruise is literally the only actor that could have pulled this movie off because he's charming, he's, like, easy to watch and be around, and he's always the dumbest person in every room. <laughs> Like it's, it is the only way for this movie to work is to have that exact combination of that's things true. in the main character. He's like a puppy, and you dangle treats in front yeah. of him. You can get him to go wherever you want him to go. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of how how Doctor Bill is. He thinks he's like that's the thing. He thinks he's enacting this new agency of like I'm gonna break the rules and do some right. dirty fucking. And really, when you when you pull the lens back, it's like he's not really making these decisions based in any sort of. He's making these decisions as a rebellion against the fact that he just does what he's told all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating. Oh, my God. I got to read this the, the book that this is based on. I re- what, Trom Novel? Trom Novel by Arthur Schnitzler. Trom, has anyone here read it? No, I have. You have oh, how is you it? Have. Like, what's, what's the... Can you compare um, that to the movie in any way? I know it's not, like, a direct adaptation but it well, is a reworking. I, I don't know. It, you know. Well, I don't even know if I would say it's a rework. It, it is a, it is. It's just that there is the sort of the, the, the anachronism involving time, which is it, it literally transplants the story fairly faithfully onto this imaginary 1999 New York. Um, cool. The, uh, the, uh, the book was written at a time um, when, um, and Schnitzler is like very was fairly well known for basically like kind of like exploring like sexual liberation uh, in Vienna. This time, like he, he's probably maybe most famous for his play La Ronde, uh, which is kind of like a roundelay of like 
uh, lo- like lovers, basically. Like what you'll see, sort of a uh, two people. I think I've actually seen follow. a reading of that. That name sounds so familiar. I mean, I my girlfriend's an actress, so we see a lot of readings. But um, but yeah, so I feel like with the so familiar. It, it's, it's a, I'd say basically the skinny of it is is it, it is a surprisingly faithful book if you sit down and like sort of like think about it after reading it. You know, like when you're when you're reading it in the moment, you you're kind of just you know like you know you're kind of puzzled by it, but you know it's it's it is fairly faithful in spirit. Nice. So there, I also there, really it is about a secret society of people fucking and this like doctor stumbling upon him. Uh, it's more like a, v, a, a Venetian like masked ball. Um, okay. I haven't read in years, but I be, I believe there is intimations of sex in it. Like because a lot of Schnitzer's work is very uh, sexually charged. I'm sure it's suggested that these elites at this ball are not just there to have some champagne. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, but but literally, like if you do like if you do like read like like even if you just maybe go online and read this like the synopsis for this or for the book, uh, or if you sit down and read the book, which I would recommend, you can read. I'm it going as to read the book. Play. Um, it's a it, it is. I can't remember what's the, what's the character's name in that book. It's. Fridolin or something, Fridolin. Um, um, I know the the wife's name is Albertina, but it's it is a. It, <laughs> what if it's, it's like Tom and Cruzen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a it's it's a yeah. I'm actually re- I'm looking up right here. Okay, okay. This is how faithful it is. Write down the fact that Nightingale's name is Nottingale. Oh, oh wow. okay, yeah. Yes. Fridolin so it, is the name, but Fridolin, also okay. this is interesting. Tromnovel translates, at least in the Wikipedia entry, to dream story. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm de- I've I've been on a I've read a lot of books this year. Like I really tried to up my reading intake this year, so I'm like blasting through. I'm adding this to the list. Oh, Scully, I have an answer to a question you asked earlier, and I just remembered. I think that the reason this movie does actually work as far as Tom Cruise as a sexual being. I'm so glad we came back to this. I would have forgot. Yes. Is because he's in a movie with Nicole Kidman. I think the yeah. fact that there is that it's a person he's actually in a relationship with hmm. uh, allows for him to do something that I think he otherwise is like not willing to give of himself on screen. Does that kind mm-hmm. of make sense? I, I think you're correct. I actually think you're 100% correct. The note that I have is that the the sexuality in this, and I'm not talking about the character. Yeah. Because it's true for the I'm talking about Tom Cruise. The sexuality in this is not one based in ego. Right. The, the baseline that we were referring to was Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. And that is vanity on vanity on yeah. vanity on vanity, Sean Hannity. And it is <laughs> it is just... You know, and this is not that. This is actually a very re- now the character is very much acting in ego, um, mm-hmm. as these you know super privileged male characters are wont to do. Yeah. But I think that the approach that Tom Cruise has is not one of ego. I think here he sort of understands that there's an air of patheticism to him, or an air of desperation even to the character, and that undercuts the fact that. Whereas there's sexy stuff happening on screen that's believable, I don't think that he's playing it in a way that we as the audience are supposed to necessarily expressly be desirous of him. Whereas in like a Mission Impossible 2, 
it's very clear that they're trying to be like, check out this hunk with his long hair and his guns and his flip kicks. And it's like, but it, but it's not sexy. And so here it's like, it's not trying to titillate us necessarily through him. It's trying to titillate us through a broader expanse. So I think, yeah, I think you're, long story short, you're right. I think because it's, yeah. And I because think, like his like, wife is there, it's different. Even mm-hmm. compare like the two sort of, in my mind, the two distinct scenes from these movies where he literally touches a woman, right? In in um in Mission Impossible Two, it's that really fucking weird scene where like he's ultimately playing a weird trick on Tandy Newton and like the people that she's stealing from, and he's doing that thing where he's like on top of her and like spinning her around, and it like everything about it, you're like, she doesn't look like she wants to be touched by you. Yeah, you don't even look like forceful. you want to be touching her. Like all of it feels and looks weird. Whereas the very opening scene of this, I think it's the opening scene of this movie of Eyes Wide Shut, um, when they're just getting ready to go out together, and he just kind of casually approaches her from behind and just kind of puts his arms around her, and he he touches her in a way that it's like that is his wife. That's like he touches her in that way where it's like there's not an actual extreme overt like this is sexy. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's just, no, this is this is the woman I love. Like it's these is, people are sexy to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, and it at least feels the, very, you know, yeah, by the end, yeah. sure. <laughs> it feels the, very yeah. natural. And the one scene where he does exhibit the kind of like masculinist behavior that I guess you're relating to in the in the sort of the notorious subplot, as I call it, the notorious subplot of Mission Impossible too. <laughs> the one scene where he does sort of act in that way, he practically sexually assaults the woman. Right. Yeah. 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 Which, yeah. yeah, which is when uh, the Domino's roommate, uh, when yep. he basically like takes off her top and feels her breasts. Yeah. yeah, it's very weird. It feels like in, in the movie, it's almost like he doesn't know not. the dance of seduction. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the movie also clearly yeah. seems to disapprove of that moment too. I I, I just had to put that in there because I agree. Oh, it, it, yeah. does not, it doesn't. I mean, it has that classic cold Kubrickian gaze where, like, I wouldn't say it's judging him as much as just like this is no. <laughs> it's yeah. framed. It's, it's framed as dispassionate. Dispassionate and borderline, and sees it as almost absurd. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost grat. It's oh god, I'm gonna say this in a way that's gonna sound so bad because I have beer in my belly, but it's the uh, eh, I'm a gravitity. It's that it's that <laughs> mentality where it's like you're literally just doing that to quantify the fact that you quote unquote grabbed a titty today. There's right. nothing behind that except sheer material gain and ego boost. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. and he's so yeah. proud it's of the little, uh, does that too. Is that moment, that and he's so weirdly proud of himself in that moment too, because when he sits yeah. da- when they sit down at the table, it's another one of those cruise ticks, which is interesting because it kind of like subverts the cruise image that we think of in terms of his star persona. He just like crosses his arms and like stares at her and just goes, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. This weird like almost creepy giggle. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, Tom Cruise is no stranger to the creepy giggle. Let's be real. <laughs> He's a very he's very big on the uh, the uh, <laughs> that well that was a visual for the people listening. I, yeah. They I mean, that all was very knew what much it was. 
Yeah, I'm sure they all I do. Say, <laughs> I, sp- I speak as someone who actually likes Tom Cruise too. I mean, I, I, I do too. I think he's a good actor when he wants to be. Yeah. Well, I um, we actually our last YouTube video, quite literally, we didn't plan it, but it fell down a Mission Impossible Tom Cruise conversation simply because Garrett was showing Tori all of those, and I just obtained the box set for my Blu-ray player. <laughs> Yeah, love me some cruise. Yeah, and I saw I can tell you I know this is actually I think a favorite subject of yours. I saw Mission Impossible two for the first time, uh, and so was sort of kind of trying to go through it with Dan. Like this crazy movie, we have to talk about it. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, yeah. it's like um, not very good Mission Impossible movie, but it is ultimately essential to what a Mission Impossible movie is now. Yeah, and, well, I remember. And I, I t- and, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Garrett. Oh, I just I it it is like. I would say even even among John Woo stuff, it's like lesser tier John Woo, but still like if you're watching it through that lens as opposed to through the Mission Impossible lens, it's like a lot more entertaining, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's funny. It's lesser tier Mission Impossible. It's lesser tier Tom Cruise. It's lesser tier John Woo. And it's lesser tier Limp Bizkit and Metallica. <laughs> the whole thing is right across the middle. I forgot there is a Limp Bizkit music video that goes along with that movie. Yes, Limp- there is. Limp Bizkit uh, did the theme. Their yep. song invokes yeah. the, uh, oh, now I'm going to forget his name. Who's the composer? Oh, uh, Lalo Schifrin. Lalo uh, Schifrin. Right. They, they use, uh, uh, I believe, uh, what's his name? Wes Borland invokes <laughs> the riff created by Lalo Schifrin. Yep. And all the players uh, and all it, the haters. I do have to say, Santelli, that movie has a lot of beautiful frames in it. Like, it, it's, it, it, I don't know that that movie necessarily, like, even cuts together well, but... There are a lot of distinctly like great frames throughout that movie. I thought I, I was like very impressed with some of it. Well, I agree. Just in terms of just basic decontextualized aesthetics and yeah. decontextualized in terms of removing removing the idea of narrative delivery from yes. images. I mean, it does. Ha- I mean, it is a very pretty looking movie. As far as I understand, Wu got locked out of the edit on that movie, which is mm. seems clear because it's clear that they shot John Wu a- the John Wu action to be John Wu action, but it just wasn't cut that way. Yes. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, as yeah they cut as out it- that whole subplot where he's just solving missions with a baby. <laughs> he's got a baby in his arm just solving missions doing flips <laughs> as far as i think i told i think we talked about this years back damn i mean the big problem with that movie is a mission impossible movie is that it's got guns in it and that yes. just yeah. does not work you, so. you are i, I, with, I we actually mentioned like, you yeah. saying that on the show last week because it's true like all of the mission impossible movies have guns but the guns are a last resort and mm-hmm. mission impossible 2 is a run and gun movie yep. that chow yun fat would be very at home in and it's not Mission Impossible. It feels yeah, I mean, like, genuinely strange to watch Ethan Hunt just like enter a room, guns in a gun in each hand, just like mowing down bat. Like, yeah, it, it just doesn't feel right for that. Oh, he hates shooting people. It feels yeah. like it's the replacement killers too. Is what yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. Feels yeah. Like. I mean, and you're just. I mean, you're kind of just. It's almost distancing when you yeah. watch it because you're like, this is just not a. A. I mean, I get. I get that the point of the first three, four Mission Impossibles that was they were interchanging directors yep, so that yep, you know yep. they could find a style that they ultimately wanted yeah. to stick with with the Macquarie movies. Yep. But you know it's just it is Mira such Servito. a I was I, I was I was confusing the replacement killers with the corruptor. Mm-hmm. And I knew no. one was one was Mira Servino, the other was Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> figure out which yeah, Mira Servino is like I haven't seen the replacement killers in years, but she's like like a weird, like she's like a goth computer programmer, if I remember correctly. 
And it's like right, either right before or right after she got her Oscar. It's right for, after uh, Mighty Aphrodite. Mighty Aphrodite. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's like a year after she got the Oscar. So, well, Santelli, uh, do you have anything to plug? I mean, obviously, uh, people should go to Viva Video if uh, they're they're local or if they happen to be traveling this way. Mm-hmm. Come to Viva Video. We're on 16 West Lancaster Avenue in uh, Ardmore, Pennsylvania, right near the train station. Uh, we do have uh, if you're we do have COVID restrictions going on now. Only three people allowed in the shop at a time. However, if you do not want to come in, uh, you can always feel free to call us ahead of time. We can bring your order out to you. Uh, we do always sanitize the discs themselves and also uh, wipe the actual cases themselves with some. Um, with either, with either rubbing alcohol or a bit of hand sanitizer, preferably if we have our Clorox wipes, we'll use those. So yeah, can yeah, confirm. I, I watched them do this at the counter when I rented. Probably watched me doing it like like an obsessive psychopath, just making sure I had every cranny had was touched. Um, hey, you want to get them crannies? Got to be safe. But yeah, come and see us. Uh, and finally, after a couple years delay, we finally got our. Blu-ray of Funeral Parade of Roses, the great Japanese queer film, so I'm looking forward to putting that on the wall. Um, nice! Hello, kitty! Uh, Dan just had his cat uh, come onto the frame and before he just yeah, she threw was, it off. She was crying at the door, so I had to let her in again. <laughs> and you just tossed her like an airborne projectile off frame oh, yeah. there. Hi, <laughs> stinky! Um, stinky! But yeah, so that's... Uh, yeah, that's Viva Video. I'm usually there on the weekends uh, working with our intern, Roxy, and creating awesome content in addition to just doing my usual milling about and the duties that I need to do. So come visit us, and you can find me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash, I believe, Kempo Courage is still my my uh, handle. And That uh, is the type of karate I did was Kempo, which yep, is why I same. think we may have fought each other in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I love this idea. Mm-hmm. Mini dance. All right, I'm at Dan Scully on all of the things. Uh, you can check out my silly podcast, Hot Property. It's available on Spotify. Um, you can check out cinema76.com, findy.com, and uh, just, guys, happy holidays to all the listeners. I hope you have a good one. I hope that whatever you're doing, you do it safe, and you do not put yourself at any sort of added risk for the holidays, but I hope that whatever shape they take, they're awesome. And thank you so much for listening mm-hmm. to our show. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Philadelphia. That's with an F. You can find me on Cinema76.com. And I realize now we need to settle one final, final thing, and we have no time for discussion on it. So finally, uh, Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. Okay, my name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I agree with that assessment, and I like <laughs> to movie movie. My name is Dan Santelli, thrice with the assessment, and I certainly like to movie movie. We all know that you agree with the assessment and like to movie movie because we we like, like to movie. Always oh, the best stinky. on the internet. Always. <laughs>